Welcome, everybody, to the 13th episode of Sports Cards Live. This is one that I'm very excited about. Uh, this is a show that, you know, when I started this, I was hoping to be able to attract guests of the, the caliber of Dr. Brian Price. And when he agreed to come on, I was very excited. I noted this date in the calendar and have been looking forward to this for quite some time now. So Brian's in the back room waiting to come out. Before we bring him out, I'm going to just... Uh, Thank the last couple of guests. We last Saturday, Tim Getch from Com C was on, did a great job, went really in depth in Com C. So if anyone out there is interested in the company Com C, the man behind it, uh, please go watch that video. It was really, truly an amazing, an amazing episode. And uh, thanks again to Tim for that. And then just on Wednesday, we had Stefan Perot, who's a younger collector and entrepreneur in the hobby. So we had some great insights some great discussion about the state of the hobby investing in the hobby and uh being a younger person and really learning your, your the ropes in this in this wonderful hobby that we're all a part of i'm also going to let you guys know on may 27th so this coming wednesday we have uh carlos diego carlos diego is a super high-end kind of basketball collector a longtime expo veteran as a vendor he's going to be joining me it should be a really interesting conversation with carlos on wednesday and then next Saturday, uh, back to the normal time of 10 o'clock Eastern, I've got Billy Celio, who is a product manager from Upper Deck, will be joining me here and we'll be talking about building sets and everything to do with that. So be sure to come in. That'll be a great question and answer, period. So for tonight's show with Dr. Price, he's got lots of great stories to tell. I will warn everybody that uh, I may not get to as many comments as usual because there's just so much information to come, but I will be keeping my eyes on them. So keep them coming. And we'll see what we can uh, what we can get up on screen and get everybody involved. So, without any further ado, let's bring out Dr. Brian Price. Good Doc evening, Dr. Price. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm so happy you agreed to come on, and you even wanted to come on the show. So, it's it's my it's my pleasure, Jeremy. Really, I I was I was thrilled when you invited me, and I've been watching the first twelve episodes, and I only hope. I can uh, give the uh, the viewers as much interest as your other guests have. It's been really, really outstanding. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And, you know, based on our chat last night, I, I'm sure you will be able to deliver on that. You've got lots of really interesting stories to tell and a storied history in the hobby with with a view into things that uh, none of us collectors really would would be able to see the behind the scenes, the licensing issues, all that. So, really excited to hear uh, about this tonight. So. Let's get started. I mean, last night when we chatted, you know, one of the things I always like to start with is what was your first sort of entry into the hobby? What was the, the first seed that really made you a collector, which for you in turn made you into a businessman in the hobby? But why don't you start us off at the beginning in the, those early 50s when you were uh, when you were collecting the, the bottles to turn in for a couple of pennies each? Tiny bit embarrassing that we have to go from my beginning, go back to the early 50s. That, that tells <laughs> you uh, how many rings are on the, on the tree. Um, <laughs> So basically, as we discussed last night, um, uh, most people in Toronto lived downtown in the 50s. And uh, most families lived together, parents and uh, their children and their, ch their grandchildren. And uh, the houses were built in the north part of the city of Toronto in the early 50s. And I was just like any other family. In the early 50s, my parents, or my older brother and myself, moved out way out to the suburbs, which is now almost the middle of the city. Uh, called Downsview, and um, I was seven years old, and I was uh, just a regular kid. I collect stamps. Uh, I never collected cards at all, 
and um, all of the whole subdivision was being built. So there was construction sites up and down my street or when they finished at the next street over. And I found out that um, all of the construction workers at lunchtime would have, have a soda drink and have a pop bottle and they would just throw them somewhere. And, and, I, and I heard that at the, at the convenience store, they were offering two cents a bottle if you brought them back and they were nice and clean. So I decided that every night uh, with my parents' consent, I could go out after dinner for an hour and I could go to the different sites with my little wagon and, and look for pop bottles. And, and, and naturally, some of them were dusty. Others had cake mud on them if it had rained, whatever. And I collected them from Monday to Friday. And every Saturday morning, I'd go into my garage with a hose and I'd wash them all off, got them in pristine condition, and I'd drag them up the street to a place called Lover's Variety Store. And Lover's was selling hockey cards. And they were 53, 54 Parkhurst. Oof. I got two cents a bottle and they were five cents a pack. And what they had was they had a little, little stands, uh, little metal stands. And I would take, a, take in the bottles. We count the bottles. And he said, okay, you have $1.20 in credit. And it was $1.20. I would buy the number of packs. And I would open them up. And, of course, my cheeks would get bigger and bigger and bigger because it was the world's best gum. It had a lot. Yeah outer on it. It was just incredible. And then I did the, one, probably one of the dumbest things in my life. I would take the packs and I roll them up in a little ball <laughs> and there was a little garbage can and I would try and get two points. It wasn't a, there were no such thing as three pointers back then. I tried to get two pointers and throw out the wrappers, which at a later date, you could buy them on classic auctions for four or $500 a wrapper. I had hundreds of them, but anyways, that's, <laughs> I digress. That was an error. Um, <laughs> And so what I would do is we, I'd open all the packs and I'd take all the cards home and I'd sort them and I'd continue to put away the cards I needed to make a set. The rest of the cards I'd take to school uh, during the next week and I would trade or we would shoot them or play with them or flip them or all the different things that we would do. But I would trade mostly and get one pristine set and put it away. So I started at 53-4 and I just kept on going until I discovered other things like girls and things like that and sort of digressed away from, from buying the cards. I was extremely fortunate because I went to went on to university, went on to dentistry and and, and moved out of the house my mother kept everything in pristine condition. And back then, I don't know how they even had them, but we had plastic boxes like you have all the time. You go into Walmart and buy them now in storage, store your stuff. We, she got them back then. And so all of my stuff was in perfect, perfect, perfect condition. Lucky. Yeah, oh, extremely lucky. And yeah. I had, I, had um, I, I, I moved on. I had Topps football. I had, I had baseball. And I told you the story last last night. My uh, cousins came in from New York for a visit with the family, and they brought me a 1955 World Series signed autograph ball from the Brooklyn Dodgers. And I wasn't thrilled, but I, you know, I played. I said, oh, thank you! This is the greatest thing in my life. And I quickly swapped it for a, a complete top set, a 1955 top set. And I had that right up until the day until I, I sold most of the, most of the cards that I had that weren't hockey. And so I, I really, 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 really started early and I had everything was put away and I don't uh, probably didn't look at it for oh, maybe 20 years or so. And then um, I was in the healthcare business um, and I was I opened dental centers and shopping malls and I had done them all right across Canada and I took the company public and then I retired in 1990 and I was still pretty young and I had nothing to do. And so that's when I took everything out and I was I had some holes in some of the 
in some of the sets that I had from back then. And I had, I knew uh, my wife had married a, a fellow who was um, my wife's friend. Sorry, my wife had married a fellow who was uh, in the card business. And he had a store called Sluggers, Jack Eisenstein. He's now um, uh, plays a lead role in the in the film. What was it called? Jack of all trades. That's right. That's right. Jack had a store up in in the north part of Toronto, and I went in to see Jack, and I said, you know, Jack, I'm not doing anything right now, and I'd like to see if you can help me fill in the blanks of some of the cards I'm missing in some of the sets, uh, or or actually, I was trying to upgrade some of the sets as well. Uh, not that they weren't in great condition, but a lot of them were off center and miscut because. I didn't know the difference back then. I just put the cards away that came out of the packs. And so we were upgrading whatever. And he said to me, he said, you know, I've got three stores and I like the franchise. He said, can you help me? And of course, that's what I did in, in dentistry. I had uh, 107 locations across Canada. So I knew that business. So I said, you know what, Jack, here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll do a quid pro quo. I'll help you out. You'll help me out. And so I, I wrote up a, a franchising deal for him. And I went to the three managers of his three stores and they all became franchisees. And then Jack said, oh, let's go right across Canada, North America, the world, whatever. And I said, you know, I'm really not interested. And uh, but thanks. And, you know, you've got your franchising agreement. You've got three franchisees. Go ahead and good luck. Wish you the best. He said, well, OK, but how about this? And he took out a manila folder and I said, what's this? He said, well, take a look. And I, I took a look at these pages, and the first page was just a, a blank page with a little note on it. It said, I hereby give Jack Eisenstein and Ray May, Ray was Jack's previous partner, and Ray had his own store. I think he called it the Cardboard Connection or something like that. And his, actually his son, Danny May, I think still comes to the, comes to the shows. Anyways, he gave me this letter signed by this George Kennedy who owned Parker's Products Limited, giving them the rights to the, to the name Parker's. Now, I don't know that we have probably a lot, some younger people watching tonight, so I don't know if everyone knows the real history of Parker's, but Parker's just came on board. They were a gum company, and they came on board to sell cards after the war. And, of course, during the period of time up to then, all the players that were playing in the NHL, they maybe played two years or three years or four years, they didn't have any rookie cards. So in 1951-52, Parkhurst made the rookie cards of uh, Gordie Howe, uh, uh, Jacques Plante, um, uh, no, not Jacques Plante, Gordie Howe, uh, Terry Sawchuk, Maurice Richard, and those were the key cards. And they sold gum, and there was no licensing. You bought the rights from the team. So in the early days, Parkhurst had all six teams. And then Parker's competed with Topps when Topps got involved, I think around 53, 54, 54, something like that. And Topps had three teams and Parker's had three teams. And then it came right up until the last year. And, and he was being asked for $15,000 a team. And he had Toronto, Detroit, and Montreal. And Foster Hewitt actually had the, the licensing rights from the Maple Leafs. So he had a contract with Foster Hewitt for Toronto and, and uh, Montreal. And um, he got to try it and, and 45,000 was too much. And he just said, I give up, I quit. And okay. he gave Jack and Ray the rights, whatever he said, whatever my rights are, you have, there was no trademark at the time. And I said, this is interesting. I mean, that's, we just talked about my 53, 54 Parker. So I was really intrigued. And then I saw that they had incorporated a company called Park, Parker's Products Inc. So they, the old company is Parker's Products Limited. So it was very, very close to the same, just a little uh, notation at the end, which made it legal to do. 
And then I turned the next page and it said, uh, please be advised that you haven't filed your, your financial statements for 1989. And I turned the next page and said, you have two more weeks to file your financial statements. And I turned the next page and said, we are going to do this and threats from the, from the uh, provincial government uh, to, the, to the end of the last page said, we're, uh, your, your company is now, your charter is disbanded. And I said, guys, first page was a great idea you had. And the last page shows me what they said, what can we do? I said, well, I'll tell you what I could do. I said, I could drive down to Queens Park, which is the government buildings of Ontario. And I said, I can start and get a brand new company called Parker's Products Co. And manana, have a nice day. And because it's already was already a long period of time. And so they said, oh, no, don't. I said, of course, I'm not going to do that. I said, but here's what I will do. We'll start. I'll go get the company resurrected. And I'll take 50% of the shares in the company, the participating shares, and each of you guys can take 25% each. But I want 100% of the voting shares because I don't want, I'm going to do what I need to do, and I don't. we don't have to have any votes. Yeah. Either you want me to go ahead and try something or you don't. And they both said, yeah, go ahead. So I said, okay, fine. And I had a very good friend who was involved in the NHL, and he said, I get you hooked up with the, with the right person at the NHL. You go in there, you get a license, you make hockey cards. I said, great. And he calls me back and he says, you've got a, uh, the NHL's licensing is done by a company called Licensing Corporation of America. And you've got a meeting with the head person there at the Super Show in Atlanta. And I guess it would have been February of 1990. So there I am. I'm ready to go. And I'm going to tell her how important Parker's was to the hobby and hockey cards and everything. And I took my three rookie cards from when I was a kid and I screwed them into these big, thick, plastic looking things with screws in the side like they were like bars of gold with little hockey cards in took my three big rookie cards and i fly down to atlanta and i get to the super show and i look for where's the nhl and the nhl doesn't have a booth they have an arena they've got a whole ice thing with nets and stands and and it's like a little mini hockey arena right in the middle of this show and they've got they're showing all their stuff all the jerseys they're selling and t-shirts and hats and pucks and sticks and whatever and so i'm looking and i'm saying well where's eileen kent and they say she's down under there under go behind the goal and go into the office there and i go in and i plop down my three things and i'm telling her how this is you know the grandfather of all hockey cards and the war was over and they brought hockey cards back and they were the first and you know i know you're being from the states you think tops is the first but they're not and she's she says it's very very interesting story she said but we had two licensees we had tops and we have a sub sub licensee called Opichi. And just this past year, we've now taken on three new brands. So now we have five sets. We have Upper Deck, we have Pro Set, and we have Score. And we don't, there's not room for a, a, another one making six when we have to see if the five are going to work for us. Well, Notwithstanding the fact that I thought that ProSet, whoever they were, and Upper Deck I had known because they had baseball cards the year earlier, which were fabulous, and and Score I'd never heard of. Um, Notwithstanding the fact that I thought I had the best story, she was right. I could understand it from her perspective that, you know, you don't go from two to to five and then go to six in the same year. And so I was shot down. I flew home and we were all a little bit depressed. And I said, don't give up. I got an idea. So my great idea was I was going to go to the five uh, companies that were making hockey cards, and I was going to see if they wanted to license Parkhurst to be put on their cards and they would manufacture it. 
So the first one I went to was was uh, Opeachy, of course, because they were in London. I called and they said, you know, that's very, very interesting. You know, we'd love to talk to you about it, but we don't really have a license. We're just a sub licensee of Top. So, you know, we can't do a thing. We, we, we're like you want to be. We're just a sub license, but we get to make the cards. I said, thanks very much. And then I went to to Tops, and uh, the fellow's name I remember from last night was Cy Berger. Oh, yeah. I said to me, Parkhurst Schmarkhurst. <laughs> we're Tops. We, we, we don't need anybody. We're, we're Tops. And I said, okay, thanks very much. He says, he says, good luck, young man. I said, thank you, sir. And so that was that. And then I, I called uh, Upper Deck, and I spoke to – I can't remember who I spoke to there. I, and I know who called me later, but I don't think it was – a was that person and they said we're very very interested i said okay great get back to me and then i spoke to, to score and score also had a five percent relationship with the company that really had the license there was no room financially for me there and then i spoke to led denny at proset and led said to me he said i love it i'm coming to toronto tomorrow i said really he says yeah he had his own 727 uh, yeah. 727 is a smaller one, right? And he flew up. He had his own plane. He flew up with his marketing manager and his promotional manager, and we met at the Four Seasons. And I presented them with my big, my four pieces of gold, my my uh, my three pieces of gold, rather, my my three rookie cards, and they loved it. They said, "You you got a deal." He said, "But what's this?" And he threw a piece of paper on on the table in front of me, and I said, well, "What do you mean?" And I took a look at it, and Upper Deck had filed. The next day after I called them for the Parker's trademark, they filed a, a trademark application with the uh, U.S. Trademark Department, which meant that for what? For Parker's. For the name. For the name. Which meant that if they, and of course I had filed prior to them, but it meant that if there's anything wrong with my filing, if I just missed a beat, they were right there in second place to take over. That's what they did after I called them. So, anyways, it didn't really matter to me. I was a little peeves, of course, but. But I said, Lud, I said, listen, I've got, I, I stand first and, you know, I've got a good trademark application lawyer and I, I don't think there'll be a problem. He said, okay, I just wanted to know if you knew, but I said, no, I didn't. He said, okay, let's do a deal. And we did a deal. I, I licensed it to him for three years. It was uh, a $500,000 US minimum guarantee against 5% of sales. And they got the rights to, to use the name Parkhurst. And so I had marginal rights in terms of approvals. I had a little bit. So the things that I got done was I got them to put in retired players into the set. So I remember we did Gordy Howe, we did Terry Sawchuk, and that was really the first time retired players had gotten into a current a current product. Um, I also got them to number the cases, which they did, and I also got them to do a a, a, um, a second series in in bilingual english and french which they did so i think in series one we did twelve thousand five hundred cases of english and we did 2500 cases in, in, in bilingual and so fifteen thousand cases series one and fifteen thousand cases series two the world was great it was it, i was just having a great time i got to see all the uh the, the, the prints and beforehand and that i like it and of course, I made a couple of changes that didn't matter just so that they would think that I was making some changes. And uh, it was great. And then all of a sudden, I get notice that uh, ProSet has gone into Chapter 11, which is an organization in bankruptcy. And Lud Deddy is out. He's, he's been let go. And so I, I flew down to Dallas and I said, well, 
what do you guys want to do? Like, what's what's going on? He said, well, no, we're very pleased with Parkhurst. We want to build around Parkhurst. We want to keep your, your license and we're going to go forward and we're going to come out of this chapter 11 and all is going to be good. And, uh, but we have a problem. I said, okay, what's the problem? He said, well, we've had to let go of our hockey brand manager and our, and our hockey production manager. I said, oh, he said, and we'd like you to take over. I said, I live in Toronto. I said, well, you can fly down on Monday and fly home on Thursday. And we'd like you to do that. And I was thinking to myself, what do I need this for? And then on the other hand, I said, this could be a great opportunity to learn the industry from the inside. So I agreed. And uh, every every uh, Monday morning, I would put on my sweatsuit and I'd fly down there. I had I, I delivered some clothes by FedEx down there, so I didn't have to take any suitcases. So I had my working clothes down there, and I went back and forth in a sweatsuit. And when I got there, they said, oh, by the way, since you're a hockey brand manager, we also want you to produce our Platinum Hockey Series because they had another product called Plat Platinum. That, that was the that was the Proset Platinum, correct? The Platinum, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a, at that point, at that time, it was real high end product. It was a very nice thin product. Oh, so, I, I really, I loved opening those packs back yeah. in 1990, 91. Yeah, so that was, that was high end back then. It, it was. It really was. And so, we're getting a big glare off your glasses. If you could maybe, no, I can't see not, anything. I can't see a thing, but we'll be okay. Okay. So. Um, I'm having a great time. Dallas is a great city. The people in ProSet are lovely, lovely people. But what's also happening is their license with the NHL and the NHLPA is coming due. And they've got to either renew the license or get themselves out of Chapter 11. And unfortunately, they don't. So now we're in bankruptcy court and I'm going up to the judge back and forth and the judge is saying, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to stay here. I said, and if they can get their license with the uh, with the NHL and the NHLPA, I'm in. I said, but I can't wait until June, the end of June, to find out if that's going to happen and then be stuck there with no other license order to go to. So the judge granted me the right to negotiate with anyone else for the license for Parkers, subject to ProSet either going bankrupt, then it's okay, or not getting their hockey license. So I said, okay, fine. So now the marketplace has changed, and in the market now is Leaf, not the Leaf that you currently know in Texas, but the Leaf that was up in Bannockburn, Illinois, and 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 the Upper Deck. And Upper Deck really is very strong by that point. So Upper Deck calls me up and says, well, we're interested again. I said, no, no. I said, you guys, once my fault, twice your fault. I said, if you want to talk again, you need to go and you have to withdraw your application for the Parker trademark. Otherwise, we're not talking. And I started talking to Leaf. And Leaf were very, very uh, strict businessmen. They, they weren't hobby guys at all. They, and so we're negotiating a document that's 56 pages long, whatever. And Upper Deck just says, okay. And they send me, send me a notice that they've abolished their application for the trademark and let's get going to business. And so now the guy at, at, um, at uh, Upper Deck is Paul Sackman. He's the hockey brand manager, lovely guy. We're still friends to this day. And uh, we do a five-year licensing deal. Same thing, $500,000, 5%. But in, in, I inserted into that deal my right to do three retrospective hockey card sets. 
under 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 their, it's under their license under the Parker's name. So it's Parker's, but it, the license is being used as the is the NHL's license. We didn't need the PA's license because, of course, we were using retrospective players. They were no PA members, but I got to use their NHL license. And the deal was that I would produce them, but Upper Deck would would distribute the U.S. cases, and I would distribute the Canadian cases. And that's how Missing Link started. Missing Link, the first one, it had on the U.S. boxes, it was a red box, it had Gordy Howe on it. And the Canadian boxes were a red box that had Maurice Richard on it. And I had big deals with both of them. And I have to tell you, we're going back to, I guess it's 93. And I, I just, it was just like, it was hard to talk to both of them back then. They were such humongous stars and i was just a hockey fan and it was yeah. it was great doing business with both of them both of them they were both great guys so i got to do those and and the first one missing link was 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 really a labor of love because uh, a, a lot of collectors probably back then know but current collectors don't know that that parker started in 5051 and finished in 63 64 but they never made a 56 57 product George Kennedy didn't remember why he said, I don't, I don't know. I don't remember. And no one could, could really give me the truthful answer. If the, if the uh, costs of the um, royalties was too high, then I would have thought tops would have grabbed it and had all six teams that year. So we don't know why, but I thought it was just a great, great idea. We got the list of 120 players, uh, six teams times 20 each, and we signed contracts with all of them. Uh, it, it was some of them were impossible to find, but it sort of snowballed because if you spoke to a guy, he knew two guys and you spoke to them and they knew two guys further off the chart. And then you finally found the guy who was up in Duran Duran, Quebec, and he was a, you know, a retired lumberjack and you still found him. And it was really, really interesting because I created a career and the, his name will come to me, but he was, um, he was a guy who um we forgot and so he created he was the missing missing link okay okay he was on the leafs uh, lineup and it, i just don't remember his name but and he did a bunch of card shows afterwards as the missing missing link whatever but regardless it was a wonderful set to make i got all the pictures and we're we worked with the hall of fame to get pictures of all the guys and then we had a blow up uh some of the guys only had action shots we had to die cut them out it was we spent a lot of time and it was very, 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 very successful. So I got to do my second one, which was the Parker's Tall Boys, because Parker's finished in 63, 64. The Tall Boys was in tops in 64, 65. So I made a Parker's card into a Tall Boy because the Tall Boys came out in that year. And I, I forget who we had. I think we had um, Bobby Hull on the uh, American boxes and Frank Mahalovich, something like that on the Canadian boxes. And again, very, very, very successful. And my third one was the Bobby R. Rookie, the 66-67. Right. And I, as I mentioned to you last night, at that time, Bobby really uh, was not in good shape. He had been taken to the cleaners by Alan Eagleson with all of his investments. Um, and Alan never told him the story. I don't know if everyone knows this, but... Um, when Bobby was, was going to be traded to the Chicago Blackhawks, he was offered part of the team, a percentage of the team, and Alan Eagleson never told him. 
And anyways, and Alan Eagleson took a lot of, was partners with him in a lot of businesses that went south, but it went south for Bobby and not for Alan. So Bobby was sitting in a bank, I think it was the Fleet Bank, because the president of Fleet Bank was a huge Bruins fan and just gave Bobby something to do to, to make a living. And I went in there, and we gave Bobby a humongous deal to sign autographs and for his likeness and whatever. And he was just, just, just great. I, a number of times he flew up for the NHLPA alumni tournament and, and I played with them and we would stop at places to sign autographs on the way up. He also just back then, just a real, real, real gentleman. And so I finished these, I finished these three sets off during the second year of, of Upper Deck. Now, when I started with Upper Deck, and I think it's 93-94 is the first series that Upper Deck did of Parker's. Um, the deal that we made was it was going to be their high-end product, and it truly was. Gordy was on the uh, on the box, and it was a very, very high-end product. And they did series one, series two. The next year, I found in, in the 94-95 that Parkers had become their base product. And I wasn't too excited about that, and we had some discussions about that, and uh, I was reminded that I didn't have the authority I could be peeved if I wanted to be peeved, but so what? Uh, but then they did something that was a little devious and tricky and that I wasn't going to stand for. And collectors may remember this. Instead of, they were allowed to do, in, under my license, only in North America, and they were allowed to do a Series 1 and a Series 2. So I'll ask you, if Series 1 has number 1 to 270, because they did three sheets of 90 up, they did 90 up in those days, Series two should come out. What should be the first number in series two? 271. Okay, I agree. Series two comes out as SE number one, SE number two. And I called up and I said, what's this? And they said, well, it's a special edition and we're doing it for Europe. I said, hold on. We've got two little problems here. Special edition isn't series two, and you don't have the rights to do Europe. And a mini war broke out. Between, well, between, between me and Upper Deck. Because anyone, they breached anyone, anyone specifically there? Or? Oh, yeah, the legal department. The legal okay. department. As I mentioned last night, I never, even the day that I got to Upper Deck, I never met Richard McWilliams, who ran it. The day that I got there, to, to sign the, the license agreement for Parkhurst, I was greeted by Reggie Jackson. And Reggie was saying, oh, Dr. Price, Parkhurst is such an important thing to us. And then as I sat down in front of his desk, I looked, there was a big business card facing him saying, Dr. Price Parkhurst, because he, he couldn't have to remember who I was, he just read the business card. So uh, this was between me and the legal department. And the head of the legal department, again, I'm still friends with today's, Upper Deck had some great, great people there, really, truly lovely people but they were taking the bidding of, of, of the president. And so I said, we, we got a huge problem. And they said, well, we hate to tell you this, but we have a bigger problem. I said, what's that? I mean, we got a big enough problem as it is. They said, well, we're not making Parkhurst anymore. I said, well, wait a sec. We have three more years on our agreement. They said, well, we've just had a meeting with our marketing department and our big retail customers are very confused because we're selling them our base brand Collector's Choice Baseball, Collector's Choice Football, Collector's Choice Basketball, and Parkhurst Hockey, and they don't understand. So we are going to make Collector's Choice Hockey, 
And because we only have a license to make six brands with the NHL and the NHLPA, Parkhurst is out. I said, well, now we got three things to fight about. One big one and two small ones. Anyways, I didn't know what to do uh, because it was a matter of what I could do being in Canada, being a little individual guy, is I can sue this massive company in California and it can take me years and hundreds of thousands of dollars to do. So I had to figure out a better way. That wasn't going to work. Uh, so I put them on a notice that I was that they breached my contract for the for the for the uh, special edition, the special series and the distribution in uh, in Scandinavia. And I was leaving the other thing alone. And I decided that I was going to take a stab in the dark. And I put out a legal letter to the NHLPA threatening to sue them if they would agree to give Upper Deck the rights to collector's choice because it was going to mean that they were going to have to breach my agreement. And since they were a licensor and I was a licensor, we were supposed to stick together and... That was my threat. And I got a call right away from Ted Saskin, who at that time was a senior head of legal affairs and licensing at the NHLPA. And he said, you're not going to sue us. I said, yes, I am. He said, come on, you're not going to sue us. You'd be crazy. I said, well, let's say I'm not. Can you help me? And he said, yes, I'll help you because what they're doing is wrong. And uh, if you if they took you on as a licensee, a licensor for five years and they're the licensee, then they're going to have to stick with Parkhurst and they have to get they get the collector's choice three years from now. So he basically said to, to Upper Deck, they could not do collector's choice hockey. They, would, they, they just said, no, they rejected it. And so I got a call from Paul Sackman yelling and screaming, whatever. I said, Paul, I mean, you know, what's what I'm doing the, the right thing for me. You're doing the right thing from you. And, uh, and, and if the NHLPA feels that I'm right there and, and they're doing what they're doing, you have to decide what to do. They said, well, let's deal with the other two small issues first. I said, okay, let's deal with the other small issues. You didn't have the right to sell that. So that doesn't go against my minimum. So I want 5% of your sales that you sold into Scandinavia. It doesn't count to the 500,000, which is my base. So he said, okay, done. That was over. So I guess he figured if he gave me the little tiny fish, I wouldn't fish for the whale. Right. But no, it's not, it's not the way it's going to be. So the bottom line to me was, I said, okay, there's only one way to do it. you got to pay me the three years. He said, okay, we'll pay you 500000 a year for the next three years. I said, okay, that's fine if you want to do that, but I'm not going to release my suit, and therefore you're not going to get collector's choice until I get the last payment. Because otherwise, you'll give me $500,000, and the rest of them, they'll say, you know, sue, sue us. He said, okay. He had to go back to Richard. He goes back from Richard. He says, okay, we'll give you, we'll give you the million and a half, but you have to give us a present value, which means that if they're giving me all the money today that they're supposed to give me over three years, there should be a discount. And that's, that's fair. You just have to pick an interest rate. So I gave him a fair interest rate and I said, okay, we got a deal. He said, well, I'll get back to you. I'll let you know. So he gets back to me and he says, okay, we'll give you the fair market value. We'll agree on that, but you can't make Parker's cards until the end of what our lease would be. So you have to keep it in a band. I said, if I leave it for two years, it's going to become worthless. Yeah. I said, no. I said, I'll give you something else. I'll give you the right to pay me off in three installments, and you give me the right to take it right away. He said, okay, I'll get back to you. He calls me back, and uh, he said, okay, we, we agree. You can have your license back. We'll take in three payments, and uh, you give us a release. I said, no, 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 hold on. I'll give you a release when I get the third payment. 
because otherwise I get my first payment in the anyways to make a long story short we do the whole deal and I'm gone and they the next year they do collector's choice hockey and I'm I got Parker's back with nothing to do because there was no one else really to go to I couldn't go back to Leaf because they were upset that I went to upper deck and said no to them a lot of the other companies were gone and so I decided to take a shot and I went to Ted Sask and I said Ted uh, there's supposed to be this huge market in, in Europe for hockey cards. Upper Deck did this special edition. Will you give me a license um, to do uh, Parkhurst International? And he said, sure, but I'm only going to give you one year. Let's see if it works. I said, now, will I have any problem with the NHL? He said, no, I'll just make a call. And he did, and, and, and that was it. What collectors don't know is, as I said at the beginning, uh, when I first went there, Neither the NHL nor the NHLPA had anything to do with licensing because the sales from trading cards was nothing. They had Licensing Corporation of America, and you got an NHL and an NHLPA license at the same time. Now hockey cards got a little bit bigger when Upper Deck got involved starting in the 90s, and now all of a sudden, Licensing Corporation of America was still doing it, but the NHL was in control. The, the lockout in, I think it was 93 or 94, was all over trading cards. The NHLPA wanted to take over trading cards. It was a big business and they wanted to be in control and they got control. And so that's why when I went to ask for that license and they said, now do I have to call the NHL? Ted just said, no, I'll make the call and you got it. So I went ahead and I did Parker's International and I think I did uh, something called Emerald Ice was a parallel and uh, big, huge boxes with a jillion packs in it. And to make a long story short, as much as I now was a, a licensee and a licensor and a manufacturer, and I, I was getting to do some tremendous things for myself instead of for someone else, it wasn't that successful. The market over there really wasn't as strong as I was led to believe by by Proset, uh, by Upper Deck rather. And what had actually happened was a lot of stuff got to Finland and it got to Czechoslovakia and it got to it got to Sweden and it came back to North America. And so by the time it came back, it was shipping there, shipping there, and it was a huge price. But anyways, we made a we made a series one, we made a series two. Our spokespeople, I'll never forget, our Finnish spokesperson was Timo Solani. Uh-huh. Uh, our uh, who was our uh, Renberg was one of yeah, our yeah. spokespeople. I'm the I'm Legion Legion of yeah, Saku Koivu was the spokesperson, and uh, I made it. I they, they I made big blow up cards at the top of each box, and they autographed a blow up card, and we put them in randomly autographed ones. And it was a great, great product, but it wasn't so good. So I decided it was now time to uh, to get out of the uh, hockey trading card business, and I retired in 1995. Not so much. It didn't have it. Didn't, the story didn't did not, does not so, end there. No, it didn't end there. Um, so I'm doing nothing. I'm having a good time. And and uh, and I get a call from Ted Sask, and, and he says, can you come down to the PA? So I go down. He said, uh, remember the solid I did for a few years ago? I said, yeah, it was, yeah, I do remember. I'll never forget. And thank you very much. He said, I need another one back. I said, what's that? He said, well, we came out while you were with Upper Deck with a product called Be a Player. And I think it started in 94, 95. 
And it was the NHLPA's way of showing the NHL that the players are more important than the logos. You can't sell a series with just a logo on a card, but you watch, we can sell a series with just a player on a card. And they did be a player and they took pictures of the guys in their, in their golf shirts and whatever. And then they created a be a player jersey and they, and they had their own logo and they had, it was a great product and I predicted very, very well with it. But that the was, uh, wasn't that product a uh, one autograph per pack, which was a, uh, which was the first time ever? Could have been. That, that was a big deal back then. It could have been. I'll tell you why it could have been because my deal with the players when I got be a player was they would sign 2,000 cards for a dollar a card for be a player. You try to get them afterwards for the 2,000 and first card, and you paid their going rate. But for be a player, it was a dollar a card. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, some of them are worth a lot more now, but many of them are worth about that. Well, unfortunately, that's what does yeah. happen. There's a lot of guys here who you probably would never knew were hockey players either. Yeah. Anyway, so they do it in 94, 95, and they do it in 95, 96. But the deal with all of the licensors is, licensees is that um, you get be a player for two years, and then the next guy gets it for two years, then the next licensee gets it. So it became Pinnacle's turn. And Pinnacle came out with a 96, 97 uh, be a player, uh, autograph per pack, actually nicer than upper decks um, and did very, very well. Now it was their second year. So it's 97, 98. And guess what happens? Pinnacle goes into chapter 11 and actually Pinnacle didn't stay in chapter 11 very long. They immediately went to chapter seven. They were bankrupt and sitting in their warehouse were cases and cases and cases of undistributed series to uh, be a player. And so um, I helped, Ted Saskin, get it, buy it from the receiver, and then um, showed him who, who, which distributors to give it to, and they, and they eventually sold it out. So he's calling me after all this and saying, it, it's coming time to do the, the next year of Be a Player. And this is a classic, classic line from the history of me and hockey that's it go, it go, going down in history. He said, if we give it back to Upper Deck, they're going to have about 65% of the hockey market. And we think that's too high. Ooh. 65 is too high, but 100% years later, that's so that's okay. it almost sounds like the, the numbers we're getting for the coronavirus. Everyone's got a different number. So, but he said it's too high and we need someone else to do it. So we would like you to go to the uh, National in Chicago and interview distributors dealers and collectors and find out who should be doing the the um, uh, 98 be a player so i went and i talked and i had i they gave me something to give to each person i forget what it was a little token of my appreciation please sit down and talk to me on behalf of the nhlpa here's a letter and here's a little token of their appreciation and so everyone everyone that i didn't I, anyone who i knew would talk to me but anyone i didn't know they'd say yes because they wanted a little whatever it was right and so i did tr it was tremendous feedback how was, many uh how many interviews did you i did 60 interviews 60 and uh i think it was 20 i think it was 10 20 30 10 distributors, 20 dealers who had tables that I saw hockey cards on, and then 30 people who were going up to those tables and buying hockey. And and and, uh, and I just said, can you come talk to me for a minute? Um, and the answer was that they felt that Upper Deck made the best cards, 
But at the time, FLIR was the most, uh, what's the right word, honorable when it came to autographs. So maybe FLIR was not doing as many redemptions as Upper Deck was doing. So maybe that's what they meant by honorable. So I came back to the, uh, to the PA and, uh, and I sat down and I said, uh, I've taken every, taking everything into account. If you want to have someone make it the next year, and it hurts me to say this, but I think you should go back to Upper Deck. But if I were you, I would make it myself. And the reason I said that to them was because the, one of the former heads of, uh, of um, production at Upper Deck was now working at the NHLPD. His name was Michael Murhab, a great guy. Again, as I said, Upper Deck had some great people there, very talented. And I said, you know, you guys can make it yourself. And Mike can do it. And I left. Two weeks goes by. Can you come back down? We need to talk a little further. So I go back down. And I guess they're trying. I, I assume they're going to say, okay, we're doing it. And, uh, you know, who should we do this and who should do that? And they said, we thought this over and we'd like you to do it. And I said, well, you know, it's, it's, yeah. What's the deal? I said, well, the deal is, you'll be our 40% partner, we'll own 60%. So in the game was started, the NHLPA owned 60% of it. And that's why I feel I didn't have that many redemptions because the pressure was a little different between Pinnacle or Upper Deck sending out a box of 2000 cards and saying to a guy, sign these, versus the PA saying, please sign these, get them back to us. And people from the PA calling all the time, where are the cards? Not to say that there were guys that didn't you know, I don't want to mention any names, just took the cards and threw them in the trash. <laughs> and there were. Uh, or guys that went from Sweden to the United States and they said, oh, my God, I left the cards in Sweden. And we never got them. So there were lots of things that existed that when collectors open a pack, and that's why, and I, and I, I, I just jumped for just one second, but I will come back. That's why when, when, when I was in, in the game, we tried not to do redemptions. I did had one redemption once for a Yarmer Yager card that he didn't sign and get us one time, and I put I put redemptions in. And you know what I did for the redemption? You not only got a Yager Yarmer card signed by him, his, his, uh, the card that he was supposed to put in, but I also made a memorabilia card that went along with it, a Yager, a Yager appreciation card. So we didn't do that, but, it's, but many of the times, it's not necessarily the card company's fault. Whether they should put that redemption card in or not, or just leave the guy out, that's a decision they have to make. But we had we had all of that. But anyways, I'm going that I, I let's get back to where I was. I'm going down, I go down to their office and they said that they decided that they need to make the cards they wanted me to make it. We, so we, we create our deal. And we come out with like right away. It's very difficult to get all these cards made. And then, you know, people don't like sticker autographs, but boy oh boy, it's easy to send out a box of stickers than it is to manufacture the card, send the card, get the card back, whatever. But we got it done, and we're ready for the All-Star game in Tampa. And we come out with the Be A Player All-Star Series. And I created a, a, uh, a pack that's like a FedEx thing. You just tear the FedEx thing open. And I also made a box that wasn't rectangular because a rectangular box, the, the card store can lie down on the shelf and pile them all up beside the next one. I made a box you couldn't do that because it had a slant on it. So you had to stand my box up with the front facing the customer. And it worked. Yeah, yeah. Sold, sold out. 
<laughs> and and uh, it was incredible. And then we got ready pretty, for pretty, pretty creative for a dentist. In a bet. <laughs> you know, dentists have to be creative. You know, when, when we put the filling in and we have to carve it all out, you have to yeah. get pretty creative there too. You're like anyway, a uh, so so we, we we go to series, second series, which is now the playoff series, and we get that done. And the first year of be a player and in the game as be a player, a humongous success. But there's it's not enough for me to really have a whole staff. There's not enough to do. So the NHLPA agrees to give me one more um, product, and that's um, uh, in the game memorabilia. So that was the first, uh, the first one that we did in, I guess, ultimate, that would be, ultimate memorabilia. No, no, just, just no, memorabilia. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I guess, 2000, 2001. And now we get into the spicy topic that we didn't discuss last night, but that's the one where I cut up the, you know what? That's, I'm, I'm glad we didn't talk about that last night because I do want to ask you a question about Peter that. Peter pads. Uh, the, uh... <laughs> I, have a, I have a question for you, Brian, about that. <clears throat> when you act, so you cut those pads, the Vezina pads yourself? Uh, no. Oh, you didn't? No. Were Someone you... in my office did. I I, know, I wasn't going to do that. I can't, you know, like, you know, I, was, you, I wasn't a seamstress. Well, my, my question was going to be like, what did it, what, what goes through your head when you do something like that? Or in your case, what goes through your head when you have somebody do, do that? Okay. So the story was a very simple story. And, and listen, I know both sides. I'm on both sides. Okay. But the fact was that these were originally in the Hall of Fame. They, they had a Hall of Fame tag on them. Uh, the Hall of Fame was run by a guy named Lefty Wilson. It was not where it is today. It was at the exhibition, the CNE. They had no money for other stuff, and so they sold stuff and they brought other stuff in. They were for sale by the guy who got them from the Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame had an opportunity to buy them. So if they if if it was that important, they could have got them. They could have gone to Molson's or somebody and said, "We need a donation to buy these things." And I was trying to launch a card company, and I launched it. It launched all right. But it was, it was, you know, it was quite a thing because they, they were very important. I, I, I understand that. Yeah. But it, to me, it was a business decision. And they were available to the Hall of Fame. And if the Hall of Fame wanted, I mean, did the Hall of Fame want me to go out and pay that huge price for them and then donate them? Like, where, where's that? I mean, no. And I don't think there's any collector out there who would have paid what I paid for them and then taken them and given them to the Hall of Fame. There may be a couple, but there's not too many. But anyway, so that's so. But that took me to that, and that's when I released that, and and we were all over. We were in the Los Angeles the Times, the New York Post, all over the place, and it, it it was very successful. And then in the game grew and grew into more products, and then I did Heroes and well, actually I, I think I did Between the Pipes, and and we came out with more in 2002, 2003, 2003, 2004. We were off to the races. Things were great. I mean, I was the first guy to sign Ovechkin. I was the first guy to sign Tavares. I signed uh, I signed Ovechkin. He was 14 years old. He came over here to play in the World Minor something or other thing, and we came down. We met his parents at the rink, and he gave us a stick. He was just a kid. Yeah. I, I, I told you yesterday, my guy waited at Tavares's house with a with our contract in hand he wouldn't they wouldn't sign it because they're waiting for the chl to say that he could play join a year early because he was a year early going there Tavares or crosby Tavares. Tavares. okay Tavares. he was Tavares was the first one i think who got that exemption so ken whitnell my office was sitting at his mom's house 
they lived in Pickering or something like that. They're reading this, uh, some type of uh, whatever denomination he is. She makes special potato things. And they're reading, waiting for the, a call from the CHL. My contract was sitting there right on the table. And so we really built it up to something amazing. And then my mentor, my friend, the guy who helped me solve my upper deck product, crashed it down by by saying, by actually... Ted Saskin, right? Ted Saskin. The, the, guy, the guy whose name was on the back of your cards. On the back of every card. As a matter of fact, his name was there, and I was obligated to, to before we could make a memorabilia card, send down to him all of the authentication before he put his name on and blah, blah, blah. And he was a great partner, and he was a great guy at the time. It just crashed down, and basically, when I got the notice that they were not renewing my license, Every call, every email, every letter I sent went unanswered for a period of time. And Brian, of course, we, yes, there, you know, there's there are questions kind of going by from the viewers, um, and I a lot of them I think we'll we'll get to a little bit later. But one of them I'm I'm curious too if you're if you're uh, willing or able to disclose the information. Sorry, Peter says, can you give a ballpark of what the pads cost back in the day, or is that on the public record? It is not on the public record, and it is something that I will take to my grave. There we go, everybody. We're not going to find that out tonight. Okay. Sorry. That's okay. Hey, it's your business. You, you. Yeah. You know what? Anymore, the controversy finally has died down. The, I, I keep there's a, as a little ember every so often. I have to stomp on with my feet. I don't want to start it up again. But I have to tell you, if I had to do it again 100 times, I'd do it 99 of them. Yeah. One time I'd save the pads. Well, hey, I mean, you know what? Those were, I, I think I heard you say many, many years ago that, you know, um, you can put them in, a, in the Hall of Fame and those that are lucky enough to get to go visit them are going to see them. But what you did, uh, and I'm not condoning it either way, but I, I do agree with the next part of the comment is that, you know, you, by cutting them up, you did give hundreds and hundreds of fans the opportunity to actually own a piece of those that nobody could really own because you thought they were in the hall of fame so i mean i'm still trying to find one of those for my own collection because i think they're such spectacular and important cards in the hobby i mean they really are a landmark card and now to you know to really understand that they were the first brand that you did under the uh in the game uh banner and um you know just how important that was to you it's i think it's certainly, yeah it certainly put us on the map there's no doubt about that because whether you like it you know they always say press bad press and good press is always good because it's press right you know you don't like to be called a you know whatever they call you because you cut up the, the pads whatever but my you know the hall of fame are the only ones and and i i've worked with them for years and years and years and they're really sweet guys uh, pritchard is really a nice guy i really like him a lot but they had no dog in the fight. If they wanted them, they could have got them. After the fact, to say that, oh, my God, that's not right. That's not right. Because no. they knew where they were. Uh, and <clears throat> in reality, like I said, they could have gone to one of the Eatons or one of the whatever and said, can you give us a donation? We want to buy the pads. But I know all the stories. Like I say, that's why I don't, the, the embers are still, they're still there. But the, at least the fire was put out. But... I was really sort of, you know, it, it was interesting enough news that it got right across North America. Like when it was in the L.A. Times, I was shocked. And at, at that time, USA Today had a guy named Keith Allen. He used to write the hockey there. And he wrote a big story. And it was on the front page of the Globe and the Star and the whatever and the Sun. But it was uh, it was an interesting time.
For sure. So, so, so that's the beginning of in the game. And before you, you know, before you continue and take us through more of in the game, and then you're, you're, you know, you, you, you play, you did some famous fabrics, you did sports Kings. Um, and now you're on to president's choice before you continue the story. Let's just bring up a couple comments that have gone by. Cause there have been uh, a few here. Um, I like this one from Ralph says dragon's den hockey edition. I love it. So I don't know if you're looking to buy any businesses tonight, Dr. Price, but uh, if you are, we may have some uh, some people that are interested in that. Um, yeah, Chris Chris West says, you know, that year of Parkhurst is, is a cluster, something to figure out. That's when they did the series two as the S as the the SE. So definitely uh, confused the collectors. Aaron really loves these stories. So much info. Ziggy says, very interesting story. Thanks for coming to watch, Ziggy. Curtis Johnson, one of your biggest fans and customers. This is great stuff. Just happy to see you here. What does Amit say? This is like a story time of the ages. I love this. I wish I had a question, but I'm too enthralled listening to come up with any. So I think there's a lot of people that are really happy to, to see you here, uh, Dr. Price. And so again, thank you for, for joining. Um, Jason says, be a player 0203 is the first hobby box he ever bought. So something, you know, that's the first uh, hobby box. That's a, it's an important part. And our buddy Jay-Z says, my first trip to the expo, I met Dr. Price, lovely gentleman, pleasure to see you this evening. That's very nice. So it brings me to a couple questions from Super Striker, but I think we'll come back to them. So Super Striker, if you can just ask them again later when they're more kind of on the topic, I will definitely get back to them. Uh, I love the ITG Between the Pipes, the best series, best series of cards ever. Thank you, Jason. And then Peter says, fair enough on not answering the questions on the cost of the pads. So again, <laughs> we'll, we'll let that rest now. That's, that's the end of that. And Costa says, I'm a huge fan of those CHL logo shields from, uh, from um, Heroes and Prospects, I'm guessing, right? And maybe some in between the pipes as well. Yeah. Here, you know, Heroes and Prospects was really good because when I came up against the cement wall with Saskin, I, I, I mean, there was nothing for me to do. He gave me back the 60%. He said, you know, here's your company back, but where was I going to go? And I had to figure out what to do. And I realized that, that I could make a brand out of the fact that I just leave out the, it's, it's all, it's almost like I, I made the Oreo. I left out the, the white in the middle. I had the, the, the AHL and the CHL was one of the ends and the, and, and the guys after they retired and I just left out the middle. So we did heroes and prospects and working with the CHL at the beginning was like amazing because I was allowed to, there's almost 60 teams, I think, in, in, the, in the three leagues. And I was allowed to get three jerseys, game used jerseys, from each team. So I had like 180 of those logos. I had, you know, just tons of logos. And that's why we had huge emblem cards on, in all the CHL. Then I also got a complete set of the top prospects game. And I got a complete set of the Canada Russia series. Wow. So, I mean, we yeah, just had jersey after jersey after jersey, and we made hundreds of nameplates. It was, it was just great. And uh, as it turned out, um, you know, some of the things that we did that I'm extremely proud of is that, you know, we, were the, we, we, we weren't the first one to make CHL cards. Uh, there were other uh, companies that made teamed cards, and there was also that. I forget the name of the company, but they made something for Lindros's rookie year. They made box sets, whatever. But we made, you know, constant. We treated them like NHL players. The same with the AHL. We were also the first ones to make women's hockey cards when we did Going for Gold. Also something extremely proud of. No one had ever done that before. And a couple of the other things that were really, really good, we were the first ones to to have uh, 
uh, graded cards in our product. When we did uh, Ultimate Memorabilia, where Beckett did the, the grading for us. Yeah. Uh, we were the first ones to put in, I don't know what you call it. We were trying to do something where people wouldn't search packs. They wouldn't squeeze a them. decoy decoy cards. And as opposed to putting in a piece of cardboard, we started the a shootsy scores program, which was very, very successful where people said we were getting boxes and boxes and cartons full of cards. Like someone like, um, a steel city would go down and they break a uh, 25 cases and they send us up a skid full of shootsy scores cards that we had to count before we gave them their redemption cards. So we did stuff like that, and we're very proud of that. And uh, uh, you know, it was just a matter of when you're when you're a collector, and you're collector based, and you're in control, and you can make your own decisions. No one can say no, other than your licensors. They can try to say no, and sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. But you can make a decision, and you and you get to do it. If you're wrong, well, you lose money. If you're right, you make money. But it's not that. It's that. You know, I want to do this. I want to make the the woman's going for gold set. So I did it, and it was extremely successful. If no one would have bought it, it would have been okay. There's another idea. You know, and you you put it in the dustbin. But that's the that's the the beauty of uh, of of doing that. So so we got to to the point where I was shut out, and um, I didn't know. Why. Did you did you just fast forward to when you when in the game lost the. So we're back, we're back now to, to, to 2004, 2005, and the NHL is, is uh, I don't know which one was a lockout, which was a strike anymore. It's a, it was a labor dispute regardless yeah. of what it was. Yeah. And I didn't know what was going on, and I just know that my friend, mentor, uh, redeemer, whatever you want to call him, wasn't returning my calls, wasn't doing it. Like I, just, he just, I got a letter saying your license is not going to be renewed. So I gave up on trying to find that out and I tried to work through the back channels. But in the meantime, I went to the NHL and I said, uh, I'd like to renew my license. And they said, well, we're in the midst of a labor dispute, so we'll give you a year, but we can't give you more than that. And I said, fine. So I had a year with the, uh, with just the uh, NHL. So of course I did heroes and prospects and stuff like that. And I think I, I may have done ultimate. Yeah. I, I never had skipped a year in ultimate. So I did ultimate. I don't know how I got around that, but I probably figured out a way of doing more uh, retired players than not. And and I did the uh, I did the franchises set, which was all of the franchises going all the way back, including. Uh, so I had a, a U.S. East, a U.S. West, and a Canadian. Very popular set. Oh, true. And I had a wonderful time doing it because again, I got to go back and sign all the players, and we needed hundreds of players. So now I was into WHA guys and, you know, and I was a Toronto Toros fan because at the time I couldn't afford leaf tickets. So I was a Toronto Toros fan. So I got to sign guys that were in and out of, of uh, varsity arena when I watched them play. And so that was really, really good. And then the next thing I know, I'm going back to the NHL. The NHL finds out what's going on, that upper deck has an exclusive. And the NHL says to me, well, you know, we'd like to get some of that exclusive money. And, uh, and they said no. So in the following year, 2005, 2006, I was gone from, gone from the NHL as well. And, and as the story goes, and it's a very, very interesting story, is I'm trying to find out how guy that I was so friendly with, and, and, and he helped me and I helped him, all of a sudden abandoned me. And, and I realized that he no longer wanted to be the uh, senior vice president of licensing and legal affairs. He wanted oh. to be before you continue, I think this is going to be interesting for everybody watching because this is kind of the story about um, 
why you really lost the license as in terms of what was going on between the NHL and the NHL PA. So everybody, this is where you want to really pay attention to this, this story that's coming. Yeah. So it's, it, it, it really is. And like I said, you know, you, you have a relationship with people and, and you can't figure out why that relationship's over unless you did something terrible. Maybe you don't know about. So I'm just, I'm just moving along and, and, and I'm trying to connect with the people at the NHLPA who had a long relationship with someone who'll talk like what's going on there. And I find out that it's a very interesting story. And if everyone remembers the, the NHL is not going to give in. The NHL Players Association, headed by Bob Goodnow, who is a tough, good labor lawyer, they're not giving in. But the players, it's called, it was called the Costco phenomenon. The players aren't playing, and their wives are saying, come on, dear, let's go to Costco. And they're saying, oh, my God, this is terrible. I, we got to end this. I can't continue to go to Costco with my wife. I want to play hockey. I just, I don't know. I want to, I'll, I'll go on the road and play hockey. So a faction inside the NHLPA of players wants to solve this thing. And they don't real, you know, hockey players, especially, I don't know if this can be the right thing to say, but especially the Canadian ones are just, I don't know, maybe we know them better. So we, 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 we can get into their, their feeling and they're sort of saying, I just want to play. I'll play for nothing. Now, we know all of that's not true because they're making millions of dollars, but they didn't want this to continue. So Ted Saskin saw this as an opportunity to take over from Bob Goodenow because Ted, who worked under Bob for many, many years, knew Bob was a hard ass and Bob was going to beat the NHL. He was good. The players were going to win this one. So a faction inside the NHLPA of players were working with Ted and Ted was trying to become the executive director. He was trying to take over for Bob. And so what he needed to do was to convince the, the uh, executive committee, don't worry about what I used to do, licensing, because I've got it's all taken care of. I'm, I'm going to take over, the, be the executive director, but licensing is locked down because I'm going to sign Upper Deck for a five-year exclusive for $25 million in royalties, and I'm going to sign EA Sports for a seven-year deal for $42 million in royalties, and I just need an administrator to look after that. Those deals are done. Now the light bulb goes off behind my head. See, right there's a light bulb, and it goes off. I say, of course I'm gone. He's trying to enhance his own career. And I'm not second fiddle. I'm, I'm not even in the, in the orchestra. <laughs> and so now I understand what's going on. And in reality, it would have worked because Ted did take over from Bob. But what had happened was he had put uh, connections into, uh, he gave all of the players, I don't know if you know this story, but he gave all the players their own cell phones and free cellular stuff on the NHLPA. But they were able to trace the call. So he could tell if there were people talking, who they were talking to and what was going on. And at the end of the day, he got caught and he had to resign. And Chris Chelios put together a group of guys that went in and took over the executive uh, uh, committee and they threw him out. And that's when uh, a couple of guys came after him. I think Bob Kelly was his name, came in for a short period of time. So I sort of got thrown out. I was the baby who got thrown out with the wash. And in reality, it was, it was strange for me to understand because 
the 60% they were making plus their royalties when they were partners with me was pretty good money. We were doing, we were doing really well in the, uh, in the days after once we got into five and six and seven releases. And so I was long gone. And then, and then one more year and the NHL decided that, and it's really, really funny. The, N, the NHL comes out with a piece to embarrass the, uh, the NHL uh, PA when they announce the giving me the license, they say, well, we don't believe that a um, uh, exclusive is the best thing for the hobby. And then the next year they come out when they give up that this thing. Well, we think it's very good for the hobby when one person can be in charge. It was just like if you took their two press releases and put them together, they would blow up. They'd add up to zero because their one was on one side, one was on the other. But there I was, 19, uh, 2000 and, and uh, five, six, six, seven, 2006, seven, all alone on an island to decide what I was going to do. And we just, we kept on going. And as I said to you yesterday, every year got more and more difficult, got into more and more disagreements and more and more, you can't do this because of that. You can't do this. You're not allowed to do this. And then finally, I guess around 2013, so hold on, Brian. So so after 0405, you no longer had the license, but you kept, you say, uh, we kept on going on. You kept on going on making unlicensed uh, cards. 0405 was the last year. Then 0506, I had the NHL license, so I, I used that for franchises. Right. Then from then on, I yes, I was unlicensed. And, and our, our motto was we signed the players. So we said we were licensed by, by players and collectors. Right, right. Not yeah. such a great motto, but it's all I had at the time. Well, it was, you know, there, there, there was truth to that. But, but you, you then went on to say that every year got more challenging, more challenging, more things you couldn't, couldn't do. Who, who, who was regulating that that made it more challenging? Um, the PA, the NHL, tops. Just giving you legal uh, issues, or well, I'll give you a perfect example. Do you remember I did 1972, the year in hockey? Oh yeah. I love that set. Again, well, you're in it. You're I, in it. I made it for me. And then if everyone else wanted to buy some, go right ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have my own card that wasn't supposed to be in it, but it got in it. Anyways, um, I thought that was great. Tops comes along and they sue me on the basis that my design infringes their 72 design. Yeah. And I've got eight things, eight different types of things in the design. Every one I changed, just a little bit, not a lot, but the eight different design elements. I, I went to my designer and I said, write down the names of all the elements in their design. And he gave me eight things. I said, okay, let's go through every one of them and change every one of them. We changed every one, but the card did look similar. Anyways, was Tops was going to sue me. Am I going to go to court in, in New York against Tops? I mean, what am I going to do? So I had, I went up selling with them, but I'll tell you something interesting. Many, many years later, Upper Deck did a, a, a Upper Deck bought the Opeachy name, and Upper did Upper Deck did a product called Opeachy Marquee, and they took all the old Tops designs from their old sets and they just about used everything. Anyways, that's for them to fight. I wasn't going to fight. And so I basically went to top. So we, we settled that one. Um, I got into disagreements with Upper Deck uh, over players and with the rights that I had that were they over? Are they over? Are they not? You're getting this, whatever. Uh, the NHL, you can't use our colors. Baloney, there's no such a 
you can't do that. I, can't, I know I can't use your logos, but I can't use your colors. And there were some past logos that were over 50 years. There was just a fight a minute. And as you get a little bit older, you sort of lose a little bit of it. You know, you sort of get punch drunk after a while. And uh, I made the decision. No, I didn't make any decisions. I got a, uh, uh, I had a, a sit down with Brian Gray at a national and he planted a bug in my mind. Uh, you when know, was this? What year? Can you remember what year that was? 12 or 13. Okay. Because it didn't take me long. It wasn't a long period of time. Um, he just put the, he just said, you know, if you're going to do something, I'd be very, very interested. Like if you're going to sell your company, I'd sell get your company, money. You want a partner, blah, blah, blah. And as I say, I went to dental school because I never wanted to have to work for somebody. I wasn't going to be a partner. And, and, uh, I told you the story last night about my two partners from from Sluggers and how that, how that yeah. did. they did very well. But at the end of the day, it's it's hard to have partners when you're very entrepreneurial and you're prepared to take a shot. And if you win, you win, you lose, you lose to have people coming and pulling your, you know, this arm, and pulling your that arm. But I finally decided in around 2013 and then we worked out the deal. Uh, and I think we closed in 2014 and had a party up at the uh, Woodbine Center. That was a great party. We had all kinds of guys signing and and uh that was good i like that it gave out what do i call them the badge of honors yeah um, yeah I, I i ended up with one uh, with the team of solani actually uh good, good. which is now resting with jeffrey jeffrey griffith's collection but i had it for a while is yeah he trying, is he trying to get a, a a logo of every hall of famer too he was i believe so i believe he was trying <laughs> to get a, a piece every type of memorabilia ever made for every hall of famer i gotta tell you a, a wonderful father and son i've known them for a long 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 time they've take they've taken me and my grandchildren to ducks uh stanley cup games oh that's nice so this this just so everyone knows we're talking about uh, another dr jeffrey griffiths who yep. uh who wrote the book called gretzky cards so if anyone's looking to learn more about that you can Look on Amazon, I'm sure, and find Gretzky cards by Dr. Jeffrey Griffith, who now has a book also out with, in conjunction with the Hall of Fame. So pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. So. Massive, massive collector, but also a really nice kid. Really. Yeah, for kid. sure. I can. You can't call him a kid. Not as old <laughs> Fair as enough. Me. No. <laughs> More of a contemporary, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. Where were we before that? So um, we're basically at the point where I've decided to do a deal with Brian Gray. And, uh, and um, I don't sell them the company because there's assets and liabilities and whatever, and I don't want to have to do all that. I basically sell them the trade names and the memorabilia. Um, and um, the hope that he'll continue on, you know, to do the, in the style that we did. And, and he did for a while and, and you know, the, 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 the market changed and he changes with the market. He's sometimes with it. He's sometimes ahead of it. Yeah. And, uh, I'm still have a good relationship with him and happy with what he's doing. And I'm hope I'm hoping the collectors are still happy with, you know, with the in the game stuff. Yeah. I think, I mean, he seems to have a, put out his share of products and they, they seem yeah. to do pretty well. I see them being broken and shown online all the time. So and the battle that he's fighting is exactly this kind of battle that I, I'm too old to fight. I, I don't know if you know this, but um, when I was, uh, when I was uh, opening my dental offices, Dennis, doctors, lawyers, uh, pharmacists, accountants <clears throat> could not advertise in Canada. You weren't allowed to advertise. All these ads you're seeing now, you couldn't do. Right. And um, we were opening up our offices across the country. And in one year, um, Holiday Inns came to us and they wanted to do a, uh, an ad. 
in all of the Canadian publications called New Faces of the Canadian Establishment. And they wanted my partner and I to be the first people in that ad. So they, they did an ad showing my partner and I, and it basically said that, you know, when we travel across the country to our dental offices to do whatever we do there, um, we stay at Holiday Inns. And they put it in all these magazines. And the Royal College of Dental Surgeons considered that advertising. And we said, wait a minute, we're not advertising the dental offices. They're talking about our careers. And they said, well, you know, we have so many people complaining that we have to do something. I said, well, how many people are complaining or how many dentists are complaining? What, who's doing the complaining? And they said, well, we, you know, we can't tell you that. And I said, well, you already told me by not telling me. Uh, so um, we said, look, if, if, you, if you really want to take this to the limit, then we are going to challenge uh, our rights to advertise. And they had no choice, so they convicted us of professional misconduct at the level of the of the um, Royal College of Dental Surgeons. So we took it to the divisional court where we won; it was overturned, and they appealed it to the Ontario Court of Appeals where we won, and they appealed it to the Supreme Court of Canada. So in 1990, we had a Supreme Court of Canada decision bearing my partner and my name uh, that changed all the advertising. So all the advertising you're seeing now is because we took it to court. In wow. So I've been to the mountain of courts and there's no way it's very demanding. It's very intense. It's very expensive. It's very aggravating because you're not in control. Whoever the judge or judges are, they're the ones that are in control. And so I'm glad I'm not fighting his battle. And it, it is a battle and it's taking a long, long, long time to fight. And so it, it was basically enough. It was enough for me. And I've been in it enough, and he was a younger guy, and he took over. And uh, uh, probably at his age, I was as competitive, and I would I would fight the fight. But at this particular point in time, I wouldn't want to do that. But I'm certainly I'm in his corner. Yeah, good. It's nice, nice that you're there for him. Do you guys, do you and Brian Gray talk a lot to this day? Yeah, we we still speak an awful lot about about the legal case and you know opinions right. and. and contacts and stuff does, like that. does he does he ask you for advice or what you think no, no. opinions not advice there's a big difference between an opinion and advice he likes my opinion and he'll put it in there and he'll make his decision along with the other opinions but it's uh but he, he takes his own advice he doesn't need advice he's a pretty smart guy and he's got a real he's got a real great law firm working for him really superior people so you know that that's good but yeah we talk a lot and then you know talking about um, the availability of memorabilia and what if I, I got any stuff lying around the office and stuff like that because so, when you when you sold him the trade names and the memorabilia and the the assets of the company um not the assets, just certain assets that's i didn't yeah, that's right yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, you didn't do a share deal. You just did an asset and, and an intangible, right? An intangible type of deal. Yes. Yeah. So when you sold, when when you did that, what was it like the day that, like, did you ship him all the stuff, or how did how did he get all this stuff, and what was it like for you when you had to pack this up or watch him pack it up and take it out of your warehouse? It was and, a and, lot. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I have a I have a question that would kind of preface it that I was thinking of earlier. So. You, you answer that one, then I want to go back to sort of... So it was a lot easier to sign the deal than it was to watch the trucks pull out of my <laughs> pull out of the, of the dock. Six transport trailers. Filled with memorabilia. Memorabilia, yeah. Filled with memorabilia. 
no furniture, no nothing else. No, uh, no the, odd, the odd card cabinet. I don't. I don't think. Yeah. Well, yeah, I had my I had my compressor, the thing that that that, that put the uh, the cards into the plastic cases, and a few pieces of equipment that we had, but mostly mostly skids of, of boxes. Yeah. Was that was that an emotional day for you when it all went away and you kind of there goes my in the game assets or memorabilia? I guess it was. I guess it was. I I, I didn't cry, but I, I think it was like, you know, it was the end it was the end of another era. And I had a two year non compete and the that if you would have said to me, is there any way you're gonna make cards again? I would have said no chance in the world. Uh, it was like why I'm right. done, I'm finished, but I, I like doing it and now I'm doing it. At, and I had some good people that I just kept. They're like family now. So we kept them and, and, um, it's a lot better than collecting, making it for someone else who loves it. Like I get emails from guys that are trying to do either made to orders <clears throat> or certain they, if I'm doing a, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm doing these uh, equip cards of four piece memorabilia cards and someone picks their guy and I'm now I got to try, can I make that player? Can I find the memorabilia? Um, the questions I get answered and, and, and can you do this? And, and, and I'm not going to mention any names and I, and if they're listening, don't take this the wrong way, but it's a real great example. They wanted me to sign the back of their card. And I thought to myself and I said, that I'll do that. I don't care, but that's going to really make an ugly car. Like what for? So what I decided was, and I just told him today in an email, my name is on the back of the card, but it's printed. I'm going to have my designer take that out when we print the back of the card and I'll sign right in there where it is. And that I enjoy doing. So it's like, those are the kind of things that, that keeps me going. Is it so? Would you say you're you're really still doing it just because you love making the collector happy? Like no, it's not a, I don't want to go. That's not going go that far. I love making the card. Like I make the card. I don't have to in, in order to enjoy that card. I don't have to keep it and put it in a hard plastic and look at it on my shelf. I know that it's going to to a good place, and so I have the fun that I have is in making it, and and then giving it to someone who I know is enjoying it as much probably a lot more than I am. And a lot of, I hate to say this, but a lot of the guys over in Europe are real. They're really great collectors. They are, they, 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 they want a player that nobody else wants, but they want them and they got to have them. It's just great to watch it. It's, it's yeah. really enjoyable. And I get a lot of emails every day, a lot. And I enjoy answering them. Most of them. I mean, you've got the, I mean, we got the odd guy who, uh, you got to hear this story because collectors have to understand what happens on the other side of the fence. And I know that a lot of card companies get trashed for, for uh, customer service. And some, sometimes it's justified, sometimes it's not. So I have a guy who buys a box of solitaire and there's three cards in solitaire. And uh, he writes me back that there's only two cards. Now, my guy who's been with me for 15 years, hand packs of cards. And he goes out, he'll go out and, um, and we'll have 3000 cards for a thousand packs and he'll stack them in places where he knows there's 300 there and there's 300 there and there's 300 there. And basically if the box doesn't match, if there's one card missing a box, everything gets torn open again. We got to start because they never do. So we have 3000 cards. 
We have a thousand boxes. We need 3,000 cards. There's three in a box. Leave me alone. Okay. So here comes a guy that comes along. He only got two. Now, if you're doing mass production, anything's possible. And when we're on a production line and the line spit out the wrong cards, you, 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 you err on the side of the collector as best you can. But when you know you have 3,000 cards, you know you have 1,000 boxes, three cards in a box, you just know he's wrong. So anyways, he bought it at Steel City. I have to bring them up again, but it just happened. He bought it at Steel City. So I said to him, could you please, you know, send me a copy of your, of your receipt? And the story now changes that his grandfather, his father bought it for his son, his grandson, and brought it down there and, uh, and didn't, uh, didn't keep the receipt. Okay, so I get his address and I and I call Sean at Steel Cities and I said, tell him what's going on. I said, listen, if I got to do something, I got to do something. I don't know where I'm going to come up with another card. I guess I have to break another box and get card out. Um, but um, tell me about this. And then so he tells me, he said, no, we don't have any orders from that state, whatever. So then I finally go back and I asked for the guy's name and he gives me the name of a card dealer. He's a card dealer. I said, okay, card dealer, anything's possible. So I go back to Sean. I said, do you ever sell any cards to this guy? He said, no, they don't do hockey. So how far do I have to go before I know the guy is not? And we get that all the time. And the sad part about it is the more that you tried when we were larger and I had two people in customer service just alone, the more that you try to help people out, the more you get known as someone who, if you do this, they'll do that. Yeah. Or people, and you hate to do that, the wrong thing to the people who are 100% correct and you've made, them, you've made an error and you want to correct. We had, back in the day, we would get... 15 or 20 letters printed by children saying the same thing with different spelling mistakes to send a card back and they were all going to a teacher. A teacher was getting kids in his class to read letters to our customer service to say they didn't get this or they didn't get that so he could get it. And well, that's just, a, just a project for a Friday for, for the class. I got a little crazy though. I went to the Board of Education I got a little crazy. What'd you, what did you do? I, I said I went to the Board of Education and I said, "Here, these are all the people. These are all their addresses. These are all their postal codes. You figure out where they go to school, what class they're in, and you figure out what's going on here." I don't know why I did that, but it just bothered me that you know people would take advantage of something like that. Well, I, I, they're trying to. If if it is if it is underhanded, they're trying to steal from you, but they want you to give it to them. So, but no, but it's worse than that. I don't mind giving them out. But what are they teaching these little kids to do? Well, yeah, that, for That's sure. More, I don't care. So it's a bunch of cards. You know what, what are cards? Right. So, so I got into I got into the, the president's choice, and it was also kind of interesting because I created another battle. And I don't want to talk disparagingly about uh, hobby boards, but but on uh, on 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 blowout cards, it was like. How can he use the name President's Choice? He can't do that. It's illegal. It's this and that. Now, in reality, I'm not going to go on the boards and start typing about exactly, no, this is why it's not illegal. This is what I did or whatever, because everyone over there is a lawyer. So it would, it would even if it's true, it wouldn't make any sense to them. But the bottom line was I got um, a legal letter from uh, Loblaws, um, uh, trademark people, saying you can't, uh, you can't use President's Choice. 
And I said, well, not only can I use it, I mean, I already have the trademark. It's been granted by the trademark office. Well, we're going to sue you, blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, you know, now we're in Canada. It's not like suing someone in New York or California. Let's, I guess, let's get it on see what happens. So then they sent me an opportunity. They said, okay, fine. Here's what we'll do. We don't want to go to court either. So if you, if you give us the trademark, we'll least license it to you for $1 a year and perpetuity while you, while you're making hockey cards, but we want to own it because it's not right. If other people to get our tra our trademarks, then other people are going to say, Oh, I want to be president's choice for marijuana, whatever. So I said, well, let me think about that. And I waited a couple of days and called them back and I said, well, I have a problem. And they said, what's your problem? I said, well, if I ever sell president's choice, I can't get whatever the value is by having that name because it's really your name and the dollar license goes away. So I said, I'm prepared to give you that license and get it back for you for a dollar, but I want $100,000 up front. And they basically just went away. So they were yelling and screaming and whatever, and uh, and they went away. So there's always something going on, and it's and, and legal battles are not productive. And so that's, I guess, probably that's why I got out of it, got into this, and it's sort of, I've kept it down to a well. Well, a dull let, let, let's, let's just let's be just be real about, about it. it. They're, they're very, very productive for the lawyers. lawyers. Sorry, they're very productive for the lawyers. Oh no no no! They, they win every battle. Both, every both, battle. both sides. Exactly. It doesn't matter win or lose. They win. They, they, they exactly correct. And I, I I sometimes do wonder if is that is their motive or their motive truly is to is to uh, win for their client and and get paid or whether they stretch things out in order to get more pay from their client. I, I don't know. I don't listen. It's probably uh, comes in all forms. Yes. I spent enough money on lawyers to have my own degree from Harvard. I'm sure. I'm sure. And so I got it. I'm, I'm more I'm at now and I'm really enjoying it. And I have only three people at the office and uh, one of them is in the design department and one of them is in the production department and one of them is just, looks after everything else that's not in either of those departments. And it's just, they're just rolling along. And if tomorrow it closes, okay, tomorrow it closes. If people don't like what I'm doing, then I'll be done. Okay, so I wanna go back. You had you mentioned that when you were doing the CHL, you got three sets of all the jerseys, you got the Canada-Russia set. Where did all the memorabilia come from that, that went into all the in the game ultimate memorabilia products? All the vintage stuff and even of the act, you know, in I remember in in uh, the 0809 set there were lots of Lemieux cards and uh, you know basically a lot of yeah. So so the way it started was um, my obligation to Ted Saskin, as I mentioned, was <clears throat> to get show him that everything was authentic because he was putting his name on the back of the cards. So in the game, but probably in 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 when we started memorabilia, the year of the of the pads, we bought just a ton of vintage stuff like skates that 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 I, I haven't seen a pair of skates on the market since Barilco, Morenz, Joliet, um, guys that I've never seen, but uh, 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 um, Ace Bailey. I mean, there have been Rocky Richard skates and there have been Jeffrey on skates and Gordy Howe skates and Bobby Orr skates. But I'm talking about guys that I've never seen since then. And when you make a small amount of cards, like you were doing a Blades of Steel and they're out of 10 or whatever, you get a lot of product out of a pair of skates. And then I did, I took the laces out and I did the laces separately and we found a way of cutting the actual blade. 
So they last a long, long time. But when you're doing a Mario Lemieux jersey, you're going through a number of them. You're going through, I mean, he's not a good one to count. The good ones to count are, are Richards and Plant and Sawchuk. And the guys where you, you, you can't make a lot of cards because you can't, you can't replace those jerseys. They're irreplaceable. Now, what happened was when Ted wouldn't buy certain jerseys that, that he couldn't see the need for, I would buy them in my personal collection, which has started back in, I guess, when I started to do the shows and guys would come up. And, and I remember a guy coming up to me and wanting $7,500 for a Ted Kennedy wool jersey. And I said, are you out of your mind? I said, I'll give you 1500 And of course, he walked away. But that's 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 where they were back then. So um, I had um, uh, uh, multiple sets of, of Parker's cards and multiple sets of early Topps hockey cards. Some from I got from Slugger, some that I had got one out from my pop bottles. And so someone came up to me and said that he'd be prepared to convert my um, second sets, my not my primary sets, but my second and third sets, and even extra singles I had into cash and that's when i started a uh a memorabilia collection but what would happen was if it was in my collection and saskin wouldn't buy it it stayed in my collection and if we needed it then i said to him if you're if you're going to work that way then i get a premium on what i paid for it because there's no reason i should keep it and you get it when you want it and so that happened until the wall hit and then when we weren't partners anymore and i was on my own then in the game started to buy them on their own but what you would have to do in reality, if the price was right or the memorabilia was right, whether you need it or not, you had to buy it. Because, it, I mean, you just, there's certain things you just couldn't wait for. It was impossible. And there were some players that you, you, they just you couldn't get. Like, I could never get an Eddie Shore, but I got an Eddie Shore pair of pants. I got an Eddie Shore skate. I got Eddie Shore socks. But I could never get an Eddie Shore jersey. And I could never replace my Henri, my Maurice Richard jersey because by the time I needed a second one, um, they weren't selling anymore. The province of Quebec was getting involved and, and they were saying, yeah, it was all kinds of things going on. So it was very, very difficult. And then right now, um, the memorabilia market has gone up a little bit, but it's also more, um, more difficult to find guys. I mean, there's a lot of guys that are out there, but I think people are keeping their memorabilia and all the old timers, their stuff is circulated already. Now they're in the hands of younger collectors who want to keep their hands on it. So you really don't see really good stuff. Sticks are a lot easier. Although there's some sticks that can't be replaced now or they replace at very high prices. I bought, I mean, just a jillion sticks. I mean, I, I can't even count them. I look at my the stick boxes I still have. And they're massive, and they've only come out. They've only come into my possession since 2014. Okay, well, that, ties, that ties into a question from earlier, so I'm going to bring this one up. It's a, it's two questions from a viewer called Super Striker Brian. He says, uh, "So, question with President's Choice trading cards. What are your plans for the company, sort of long term? Anything like what Parker's be a player was? You want to speak to where what you're thinking down the road?" It's a day, it's, there's no down the road. I'd be totally honest with Stryker. There's no down the road. It's a day-to-day. -day, and if, if collectors out there don't want what I'm selling, I'll pack up the rest of this stuff and put a lock on the door. And that's okay. I mean, it's uh, 
like I say, it's it's almost a, we're both in the same hobby. I'm just doing it a little differently, and um, it's not that way. But if it becomes that way, uh, then that's exactly what I'll what I'll do. Yeah, uh, and you know, I mean, it, it's to make a soccer reference. You're kind of on penalty not penalty time now. Anyway, you you kind of retired twice, so. Yes. You're just doing it for fun more than anything, it there's, seems. There's no doubt about it. I have, as I mentioned to you yesterday, I have one other product that I've done that I did in time for the for the um, expo. And unfortunately, the expo uh, didn't materialize. And I don't know what I'm going to do with the product. But it will be the last um, product that I'll do. I'll, I'll, I may continue to do individual cards, but it's the last product. And I don't even know when it's going to come out because I don't know when's the appropriate time at this point. Sure. Uh, the the expo was the most appropriate time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, you know what? Speaking of expo, are you familiar, you know, uh, just do a plug here for the virtual expo. I'll throw this up. So if everybody on the ticker now, the virtual, the sports card virtual edition is coming up on June 19th and 20th and um, had a chance to kind of see what it looked like behind the scenes the other day. And it looks like it's going to be pretty cool. I know myself and a few others are going to be taking part in this thing. So Check it out, Brian. Are you uh, any any interest in you guys taking you know, part in this? You know what? We're going to look at it. First of all, I have to tell you, it's a great, great, great idea. Uh, I got to look at it a little further to see if we could fit in and materialize. The thing that I was hoping for was the opportunity to to uh, have another one of our redemptions. You know, redemptions. We were the first ones to do pack redemptions ever. And we really expanded it. I mean, I remember sometimes at the expo when we had five different redemptions. You brought this box and you got that. You brought two of these, yeah. you got four of those. And then we built up the in the game in the game land, which was like twice a year. It was like I really it was a time that I really enjoyed and having all of all of the uh, the attendees play deal or no deal and spin yeah. the wheel and all that kind of stuff. And that sort of stuff has disappeared. It has, unfortunately, with what's going on now, it's going to be a while before it come back. But well, when the shows come back, they've got to they've got to bring back some of the enjoyment. And not everything has uh, got to do with you know walking by and looking at cards. It's the it's the major part of it. But there's got to be some fun at the expo. So so I'm going to take a look at this thing. But I think it's a great great idea, and it's going to allow people to do a lot of uh, purchasing and and viewing, not having to leave their home and and uh, and regardless of the environment, it's still a good idea to 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 even interchange with the real expos when the time comes. For sure. And I think you're going to see a lot of creativity from the various vendors and the various uh, um, industry kind of people that are set up there. I, I think it's going to be a really neat thing. And, you know, it'll be the first edition. So it may not be perfect right out right out of the gate. But if we kind of allow it to grow and give it a chance and not just be negative about it, like a lot of people like to be before they give something a chance, I think it'd be a nice thing to uh, so try and support it and see if we can grow it into something that might happen more regular. That's just my personal opinion. I'm going to sign up as a vendor and uh, see what I can make of it with, with, with very low expectations because I just don't know what to expect. So I think well, if you don't expect anything, then you will never be disappointed. You'll always yeah. get out of Yeah, it. I think it'll be it. Let's go to Super Striker's second part of his question, Brian, which was um, he loves the President's Choice stick handle cards. Do you buy the whole stick? Or sorry, do you buy the nameplate or the or a whole stick? Oh, we buy the whole thing, and we try to figure out how we'll make any money by selling the the, the just the stick handle, just a little piece out of it, and uh, um, we have the whole stick. We we that's why we've you know we were the first the company to ever do a a, a complete a brand of cards based on sticks when we did stick work in two thousand twelve. Oh yeah, yeah, very very 
successful, very, very enjoyable to do. And so I love doing sticks. And uh, so what I've done is in, in order to try and make the memorabilia pay for itself, after I cut the little tiny stick handle off, uh, we do holding the stick, which is the tape from the top of the shaft. Right. Stick tape cards, which is the tape from the bottom on the blade of the stick. Um, occasionally we'll get a blade with an autograph on it and we have people that want to buy those from us. So we'll sell the blade of the stick off. Uh, we do stick rack cards. Uh, um, some of them are one one Some of them in a product are, are out of 10. So we try and cut it up as much as we can. Um, I'm just doing um, a, a card called Equipped right now, which is three small pieces of memorabilia and a large piece, which is typically a stick. And as I go through some of my stick boxes, I can see we whittle down. I was in the Jacques Plant, we're whittling down. I was in the Terry Sawchuk stick box, we're whittling down. Yeah. And uh, so there are some that the stick handle is the only piece that's been used and the rest of the stick is cut into different sections in the stick box, but there's others that are are getting low, like my Sedine sticks are getting a little bit low. We have a, a very good uh, Sedine collector that, that usually buys our stuff. So. Um, it, it, it's gonna it, it, it will take it will take time so we don't we, we try we, our answer is we would love to use the whole stick but we yeah. often often don't fair enough fair enough we have greg watching greg Cohn from who works with uh brian gray ah. Lee. He, says, he says it was pretty exciting and surreal visit to the itg office to see all that amazing memorabilia it took brian and i quite a while to soak it all in so i'm sure they had a they had a you know, I, I haven't had the opportunity to go down and see the massiveness that they must have in Texas. I was down once, but we never really got in. I was only there for a short period of time. But uh, they came up and there was a, two or three, maybe even four of them, uh, good, all good guys and, and all hockey guys. And so it was very, very interesting because every time you open another box, you saw something that was like, like was pretty amazing. So, right. yeah, they were there for a while and then – but they left us, Greg, you left us to do all the packing. <laughs> we had to do all the packing up and putting them in, in uh, these big containers and putting them on skids and watch the trucks roll in and out. But they're doing, they're doing a great job. And they bought a lot of stuff since. Um, Brian realized that, uh, he realized what I realized, that you can't always buy what you need. It's not like shopping in the catalog. When something comes up and if it's the right price, you grab it. And eventually you'll you'll use it, or if you don't ever use it, then you've got something that'll probably appreciate in value, and you can resell it. But he's been using a lot. They've been doing a lot with vintage memorabilia, doing a great job. Yeah. Okay. Here's one from Andy. He wants to know: Is owning and running a card company lucrative money wise, or do you find yourself saying this just isn't worth it? Well, until I hit the wall in two thousand five six, it was very very lucrative. And then when all of a sudden you're, you're, you're against all odds, it starts to get less and less lucrative. Um, and then maybe that's also, I guess I was saying, fighting the battle was getting a little too difficult. The, the, the profitability, the margins were, were getting slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. And um, uh, I'm not going to say it was never profitable, but it certainly wasn't as when we were a licensed company and, and uh, competing with um, competing with the we, we call them the big boys. I guess we were one at at a time, but no longer. And that's really I don't know if you remember this, Jeremy, but uh, do you remember the year when when we came out with a game? It was uh, it was called Monopoly. 
and we had people, if you brought your Monopoly game to our booth, that's the year that Upper Deck got the Monopoly. On yeah. the <laughs> you brought your Monopoly yeah. game to our booth, you got a big, some memorabilia card or something. And yeah. we walked away with about 125 Monopoly games and all my staff was wearing Monopoly on, the, on their t-shirts. And uh, like I said, it was, it's, uh, it, it was a great, great business when you got to, you know, the only people who were gonna say whether or not they wanted your product were the collectors. It was a level playing field. We all had the same thing. We could do it anyway. Yeah, Upper Deck got Gretzky. Bravo to them. They they signed them for a long-term deal, whatever. But everyone else could compete, and it was the best man won, and that was the fair way to do it. To have, a, to have it as a, a, a unique sort of exclusive thing, it just means that the person, the company making the cards, they don't have anyone to fight with, to, fight, to do things better for. Now... You know, the Upper Deck has a lot of uh, a lot of um, loyal, loyal collectors, and that's great. And they they should. They've done a lot of good things, but I still think that the marketplace should be wider than uh, than one manufacturer. And uh, just won't be me, but maybe it'll be Brian Gray, maybe it'll be someone else. It, and if they're not going to do it, if they're not going to have uh, multiple uh, licensees, there should be a good reason for it. Not the reason that they're lazy or the reason that Ted Saskin wanted to be the executive director. There has to be a better reason. He was the same guy who told me when I told him that Upper Deck should do be a, be a player. He's the same guy who said, no, that would give him 65% of the marketplace, and that's too high. <laughs> what happened? What changed in, 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 a, in a few years? So, Sounds uh, like he thought he could get Bob Goodnow's job. Well, and he did, and he got it. He just didn't keep it for very long. Yeah. And now I don't know. Now I'm I'm sort of uh, totally out of the loop in terms of who's running the show at the NHL and the NHLPA. And I my my assessment would be it's just easier for them to have one licensee, a license or yeah, licensee. They're having a licensee, and that's the same thing that's happened in football and the same thing that's happened in baseball. So I guess it's just the easy easy way out, and they get uh, they get what they want. I always thought it would be better if instead of one guy paying five million a year. Five guys paid a million and a half a year. You got seven and a half million, and the marketplace was dictated by whoever made the best product. But what do I know? I'm just a dentist. <laughs> At least you were at one time, for yeah. sure. For sure. Um, here's a question from Sean Bryan. He wants to know what's next for the brand, President's Choice. Is there any new hockey product coming out? Yeah, the only one that will come out will. It's called President's Choice Game Used. I started that within the game used and. Uh, and uh, President's Choice game used, and as I say, I had it ready. It was ready for the uh, for the Spring Expo. I had uh, all the redemption cards were made, and we were about to work around the clock to get it packaged when I found out I didn't have to work around the clock to get it packaged because there was going to be no Expo. And uh, Steve tried as, as hard as he could for as long as he could to see if he could make that work. And for us, we just kept on working on the product until – we finally found out that it wasn't going to happen, even though we were sure in our hearts that it wasn't going to happen. We just we weren't going to make that decision until Steve did. And so it's sitting ready to be packed and we just have to pick the right time. I believe um, it'll probably be our last uh, product. We'll still make cards. We'll still make made to orders. We'll still make these little uh, insert sets that were subsets that we're making now, like uh as I said, we made one a dual memo, which is two big pieces of memorabilia, top and bottom of the card. We made these four pieces, which are called equipped. 
Uh, we're looking to do one now that has uh, features uh, triple vintage, uh, the same quality of vintage, but a little bit lower price for people who can't afford the four piece card. Cause we're very cognizant of, of, you know, times are tough, money's tougher. And sure. this particular time, what we're saying is, you know, there are some people who don't, who can't afford to bust boxes to try and get what they're, they're looking for. They either have to wait and get it on eBay, or in my case, they can say, hey, listen, if you're doing a triple of uh, Barocco, I'll take it. If you're doing a triple of Joliet. And you also have the guy who says, if you're doing a, a triple of Jonas Onroth, I'll take that one. <laughs> so if there are some people that want Jonas Onroth as much as another guy wants Howie Morant. The Jonas Unroth guy, he, he's in the room watching right now. So I'm sure he's happy to hear you talk about him. But that's what collectors are all about. And that's, yeah. you know, if you're going to, if you're going to pinpoint the collector and want to be the, then that's the kind of things you have to think of. Yeah. And that's what we've been doing. And that's what I enjoy doing. So there's three of us and we'll keep on rolling. But I think as far as a product is concerned, I think that's sort of run its course. Okay. So here, I'm going to get to some more product, uh, some more comments here. And then we're going to uh, then we'll announce um, the what's coming on later on this week from you. Uh, Scott says early in the game ultimate between the pipes. Then franchises were all awesome. I missed the early ITG products. I think many Scott, people. Scott, that makes two of us. Yeah, I, I miss them too a lot. Al says some of that vintage stuff placed in the game ultimate memorabilia cards is crazy old. I.e. I. from the 1910s, and I know Al has a lot of pieces from your uh, me from the Ultimate Memorabilia when you did those decade sets. Yep, and those are very, very nice. So no, very, gotta, very. You have to tell you, decades was so much fun to do, especially the 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 larger that we made on the card, the more number of guys that we went from eight to ten, the better it is because you use less memorabilia, which is hard to get a hold of. But you're doing more players, so you're you know you're show, you're showing. And I I don't know if we did the tens, Al. I remember doing the twenties. I don't know who we would do. You for did the tens? I know you did the tens one. one time. Yeah, I'm pretty certain. I wish Al, I, I Al, wish I had one of those cards. Yeah. Al can confirm later. We'll get we'll get to his uh, his response to that down below. I'm sure. And um, Al, thank you for your continued support. I'd like to thank Al for that. For sure. Cardboard Nostalgia, Brian, wants to know, if you have a collector request, a piece of material from a player uh, for a made-to-order, do you contact Leaf to purchase back material? You know, I, 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 uh, I hope uh, Greg is there. No, I haven't done that. Um, the only time that, uh, that Leaf did help me out, and I, and I do thank them, is I was missing a couple of uh, guys for a skate lace piece, and they were very kind enough to uh, send me up some of the skate laces. Uh, we, I measured, I told them exactly how much I needed. I didn't want too much because I know how valuable they are. And and Scott helped me up with that. And I also think that uh, at one point, he also helped me out with a little bit of stick tape for a couple of uh, old Hall of Famers that I didn't uh, I didn't have sticks for. So yeah, that's the only time, but it's not a, it's not a sort of thing where, you know, they need all the memorabilia. They're, they're in business, they're not, winding down they yeah. they they got a jillion things planned for the future and uh they they need to hang on to their stuff especially their vintage stuff because like i say it's just I, you just don't see it anymore forget about what the price would be you just don't see it anymore right okay now this now this is actually from aaron who is the jonas enroth collector he wants to know do you still have a personal memorabilia collection any favorite pieces Oh, uh, it's going okay. It, it 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 was huge. It's 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 getting smaller. Um, 
only because the future generation in my family are not tremendously interested. I have a grandson who'd rather in, that me give him my Bill Barilko Leaf jersey. He'd rather I find him an Austin Matthews game worn jersey. And right. To be honest with you, it's easier to find a Bill Barilko than an Austin Matthews. <laughs> His stuff really sacred. So um, my collection is getting smaller. Um, I had um, a great international collection, starting with the 72 Summit, I had a Mahavlich, and then for the 74, I had a Gilles Graton, and for the 76, I had a Bobby Hull, uh, Bobby Clark, and Guy Lapointe. Some of those have been sold. I have an all-star collection that started with the three Memorial Games, um, the Babe, uh, uh, who was the Babe? Let me just think. There's three games before the all-star. Siebert? Babe Siebert and... Uh, there's three of them all together. And then uh, the 50 started at 47. I have a 47, a 48, a 49, a 50. And then they started wearing the all-star jerseys uh, at the same game. They kept them and then the players. So so sometimes a Bobby Orr was a number four, but so was a Moose Vasco. And so you could never really tell who's with who. So I, oh. I stopped in and I got back in the 80s. I have a collection of those. I have a tremendous Maple Leaf collections. Yeah, but I just sold uh, about a year ago. I had a, um, a jersey from uh, uh, Jack Dara. It was the first Leaf team in Maple Leaf Gardens, and they won the Stanley Cup that year. I think it was 30-31 or 31-32. It was all white with just a blue stripe on the bottom, and I sold that a while back. I still have a fairly large Leaf collection with a Turk Broda and a George Hainsworth and um, a lot of the good goalies. And then, of course, all the way up to I probably stopped at uh, Sundin, didn't go any further than that. Okay. Um, I had a, a very, very good um, a collection of wools. I had a Montreal Maroons. I had a Toronto St. Pat's. They're all gone. But I still would say that I probably have 60 to 70% of the collection. And I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Like I said, my grandchildren aren't, uh, you know, aren't too serious about it. But, um, you know, it's some, of the, some of those things, when you talk about my shipment pulling out going to Leaf, those are more... There are more tears than the side of the eyes when those start to leave. So I'm going to hang on to them for a while. Yeah, well, it's personal. personal. Some of, the, some of the real old ones I'm not going to cut up. I made that mistake once already. I'm not, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to have another <laughs> Vezina pads on my hand. Well, here, speaking of Vezina pads, the, uh, Cardboard Nostalgia wants to know, would you consider recycling an older issue card from Be A Player, for example, to use in a current issue like President's Choice, i.e. a Vezina pad card or a rare auto? Um, in a heartbeat. Fair. Okay. Sean Sean says in the game land was epic. Epic. I want a box of ultimate when I play deal or no deal. Your setup is always the best. Amit says you should do a swan song. If you ever decided to close up shop, Brian and Aaron says, I remember meeting Brian and he told me about Enroth an Enroth stick. He had very cool. Al says the 500 goal stick, the goal stick rack series. Awesome. Sad. I mean, I completed that set in one day at the expo, and then you came over to my booth and took a picture of it. That was, uh, I love that set. I I probably have it somewhere. Yeah. You, the picture, probably. I hope you do. I just, I just found a picture of us uh, having Gordy Howe at the Hot Stove Lounge at Maple Leaf Gardens signing uh, the first Parker series. He, he did, I did a big blow up of his Parker's card, and he was there with Baron Badesky. I had some great guys working for me Baron, Stephen LaRoche. 
I mean, we had some real good hockey guys, real knowledgeable hockey guys. Yeah, Steven, Steven's an author, and he wrote the back of many hockey cards for, I think, different companies over the yep. years, didn't he? Yep, 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 yep. Wasn't, uh, uh, even Dan Hurst worked for me. Dan was a tremendous collector and very knowledgeable. I had, I had really good people. Yep. That's yeah. how we, go, you know, we made good cards. It was our staff. Dan's a great guy. He he came to our uh, pre-expo dinner on Thursdays a couple of yeah. many, many yeah. times. Uh, really super nice guy, Dan, uh, extremely nice guy. And I know Stephen LaRoche, uh, along with uh, John Walden, they wrote, wrote a book called Got Him, Got Him, Need Him, which is a yep. pretty cool hockey card uh, book if anyone's interested in that. Michael has a question, Brian, not including players under exclusive contracts. Um, are there any players you wish you had signed that you never did? I mean, sounds like you went through everybody. You know what? Gretzky would be the only one. And I tried every time I heard stories that Upper Deck wasn't paying him and he hated them or whatever. And I kept on trying and trying. And the answer was always no, no, no. Uh, I had everybody else. I mean, I had Gordy until Upper Deck took him away. I had Bobby until Upper Deck took him away. I had Crosby until that was a big fiasco and yeah. Crosby. Um, so Gretzky. Gretzky, really, it, it, Gretzky right. would be the only one. I mean, I would have loved to be able. And then, as we talked about last night, I had there was a two-year period where my friend, uh, Ted Saskin, um, forced Upper Deck to let in the game use Gretzky for two years. And uh, they thought it was just for be a player. When they heard the name in the game, they all in the game, be a player, big deal. And uh, when be a player in the second year of that contract had four or five releases, they got really, really upset. And... Uh, uh, they were very, very unhappy with Saskin. At the end of the day, uh, we we lost him. But he would be the only one because, to me, my personal opinion. I hope I don't uh, offend anybody by this, but I think he's the greatest hockey player ever, and I don't think anyone will will be will be better. And there are good players today, but so I would have loved to work directly with him. Uh, I do remember that. Um, I think it was. Uh, maybe you'll help me out here. Upper Deck had a big birthday party for Gordy. I guess it was the 60th. And the, and I was with Upper Deck at the time. And so they invited me out there for Gordy's birthday party. And Wayne was there. And, and Wayne was always very good to Gordy and vice versa. And so I, for the first time ever, I really got to spend some time with him because otherwise he was always being protected by an agent or his wife or whatever. This was just a bunch of guys. And we went to... Um, we sat in a box at a Kings game and we sat in a box at a Clippers game. And uh, I realized, I mean, he's a super, super guy and I would have loved to have worked with him. So he's the only one probably, I think, of all. Okay, fair enough. Here's a question from Chris West. With all the international stuff and in the game and be a player, uh, why was there never any Team Germany included? I don't know. Okay, don't fair. Know. Fair. I mean, I would have, I would have thought uh, that at the World Cup of Hockey, when we were, when we were still uh, licensed, and I was getting jerseys, I would have been able to get World uh, Team Germany players out there. And uh, I do, I have to tell you that I just made a um, a, a quip card of Ola Kozik, and the uh, big piece is not a stick; it's a pair of pants, and it's got the Nike name from a Team Germany pants. So. I don't know if that one's gone or not, but that'd be a good one to get. But so there, it's a close. And I have to tell you, this is a really, really funny story. Um, not funny. It was sort of sad. Uh, when you talk about authenticity, and authenticity is extremely, extremely important. 
and uh, wherever wherever there's money, uh, there's crooked people. It just happens. I mean, with what we're going through right now with uh, the coronavirus, there are people out there trying to rip off other people and governments speak and take advantage. But this was a great, and I and I just I hope I get this right because it's something I've been trying to forget ever since. So I make a card, and I'm pretty sure it's from the World uh, Cup of Hockey, and I buy the jerseys. Um, my normal, I pay my normal price, and I get them from the NHLPA, and I get letters of authenticity, and I think it's Nidamaki, and I think he's a goalie for Team Finland. And I take out of the center of the card, I take right out of the heart of the card for one of these mega, mega patches. I take the logo, I cut it right out of the center, big jersey with a cut in the center. And I get a letter from a guy from a, a good good dealer and a, and a smart guy and a big hockey fan that Nidamaki never played in, in the game. Didn't play. So I go out and I go to the either the Toronto Star or something, and I get all these uh, things that are showing the summary and the whatever. And he's right. He's right. The guy didn't play. And I've got a, a, a certificate of authenticity from the NHLPA. They ran the, the World Cup of Hockey. And I got a jersey with a hole in the center of it. <laughs> I don't remember who got the card, but I don't, I had to give the guy something spectacular to get the card back. And I've never lived it down from the guys in, in Finland that I made a mistake. Well, okay. hey, I, I can see it happening. I can see it happening. I've got the card. And I don't know if Brian's got the jersey or not. I don't know if I gave it to him because I wouldn't. I, Greg may know this. I wouldn't have wanted to give it to him unless I made a mistake in giving it to him because I wouldn't want him to use it and suffer the same consequences. Sure. But I don't remember. Greg will probably remember. But it's if he has it, it's a, just a whole jersey with a hole in the center, in the, right in the center of the emblem. Okay. So speaking of Greg, he says, I mean, these comments were now, uh, we're about 20 minutes behind on the comments, Brian, but you, you never flew down to help me organize all that memorabilia anyway. So who's the smart let's one? Go, let's, go, let, let's go on because we're we're getting late here. Uh, Amit says, "I'd love to hear about why Heroes and Prospects Baseball Edition and why that didn't continue onwards." Yeah, Amita wasn't that successful, and I'm shocked. I okay. am shocked. I, I, it just it just didn't sell the way I thought it would sell, and I thought I was doing everything the same into a bigger market, baseball. So I don't have an answer. And I had some great young uh, players in there, the same way as I had Tavares and Crosby. We had some great guys that have gone on, Chris Sale and a bunch of other guys that have gone on to be great baseball players. He goes on to ask, do you have much baseball memorabilia still? No. Okay, no. let's move on to Bar Barry's comment. He says, I still have a copy of the Beckett article I wrote on the initial exclusive that you signed for me. That'd be a cool uh, piece, a cool hobby history piece. You've always been a gent since I met you in Toronto in 2000. Thank you for all you do for the hobby. And then he goes on to say, and thank you for the card you made for my oldest son. He loves it. So there you go. Some kudos. You know, I, tell you, I enjoyed making it. I'm glad, you know, we, we spent a long time, Barry and I, putting together what he wanted exactly the way he wanted it. And that's just, I think I enjoyed making it as much as he enjoys having it. And his son, I'm glad they enjoy it. It's a great card. Do you know what it is? I don't know myself, but maybe he'll he'll let us know, and we'll get yeah. to it. When it, when it, when it, it. I'm, I'm going to let him tell you because okay, okay. 
We have another one. Costa says, uh, Brian, how was it meeting Connor McDavid and getting autographs for the 12-13 in the game draft and heroes and prospects? Do you remember meeting him that day? No. Okay. No. Uh, as a Not memorable. Of, most of it was memorable getting the autographs, but most of the time my guys went down and, 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 and dealt with most of the kids. Okay. Couple comments. Nick says Upper Deck having a monopoly in hockey is the worst thing ever for this hobby. Brian signing the top draft picks was such a beautiful thing. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair comments. Okay. You and know what? I got. I just got to tell you there that okay. that, that is that. You know what? It, it it was retributive justice what he did in terms of what they the things that they were doing. It wasn't the. It's not the right spark to light the war. You know it. it, it it was Jack Eichel. If he would have signed Connor McDavid instead of Jack Eichel, then then that was the right spark to cite the war. And I think Brian would agree with that. I know why he did it. I totally agree with why he did it. But at the end of the day, um, you know, he would have been better off not having to fight that battle in, in terms of, of who it was. But like I said, if it was Connor McDavid and not Jack Eichel, not that Jack Eichel's not a great player, but Connor, Connor McDavid is a is a, you know, He's, he's, he's top-notch. He's at the top of the class. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Andy wants to say, I'm ready for a box of game of President's Choice game use. I think he means sounds exciting and the fish are biting right now. So there you go. Um, let's see, what else do we have here? Uh, here's one from uh, Joey says, sorry I'm late to the party, Dr. Price. Many thanks for everything you do for the hobby and especially my, my helm PC. You're very welcome. You know, that's what I gotta tell you. You never know who people want. Yeah. We had a Darren Helm stick. We again you did the stick rack, and then I made a couple more cards for Joey. And and that's you, you just don't know. And and Darren Helm is as important to him as Wayne Gretzky is to somebody else. For that's sure. What's so, that's what's so cool about the hobby. For sure. This next comment I have up right now is from a gentleman by the ma- by the name of Name. Uh, goes by Indigenous Rookie Cards because he's collected. You're probably familiar with Name and his Indigenous Rookie Card collection. It made national headlines. No, and I'm sad to say that. Tell me well, more. Maybe I'll remember. Remember, I'm old. Yeah, that's okay. Well, he, I'm, like he, Joe, he, I'm like Joe Biden. I sometimes I forget. Things. Well, Name has actually put together a very cool collection. As I said, it's rookie cards of all the Indigenous players who've ever played in the NHL, and he really goes did beyond. I, didn't I, do so- I did something, did I not? Uh, who did I do? Um, Saskamoose? Yeah, but there was somebody else I did. I remember somebody calling me. Uh, he also played in another sport. Was, was it Normie Kwong? No, it was somebody else. Well, and I remember the young man who called me, and they got in, a, and I said, "I'll sign." Yeah, that was Normie. That was, was Normie Norm- Kwong. Okay, that was Kwong. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah I remember that. Remember that actually very well. Saskamoose. Okay. Um, well, here Chris remembers the story. I uh, was a Nidimaki, and he didn't play for. Yeah, okay, we know that. Yeah, Greg, yeah. I have it sitting in my office. Yeah, don't, touch it. don't touch it. Don't touch it. And uh, Jay-Z says, my my Luongo PC's best pieces are still in the game. So, um, okay, and that's great. Oh, and here's uh, Darcy makes an appearance, has just wanted to make a shout-out to you over one of my favorite sets, franchises. It had everybody in the set, but Gretzky, How and Orr, nothing has come even close. I mean, that was a set. There's still people, Brian, that are doing master sets of that product, and it's hard to find the wax. I know I'm with Darcy at the shows when he goes looking for it. And he can barely find it anymore. What's the more? What's the most difficult? East, West, or Canada? I don't know the answer personally, but Darcy, you want to throw it out there? I think I think Canada has the best stuff in it with all the Habs uh, 
Hall of Famers. Okay, hey, Canada, Darcy says Canada. So okay. there you go. Okay, I'm going to throw... So, Dr. Price, you have uh, something coming up Thursday, May the 28th is a big day. It's your birthday, I understand. Birthday, and my staff has declared it President's Day. Okay, so I'm going to throw this up on the, the U.S. president, but I'll take my chances. President's Day in, in Canada for the hockey card community. I'm going to throw this up on the ticker now. Uh, May 28th is President's Day at President's Choice Trading Cards. It's our president's birthday. All individual cards in our Shopify store are on sale for 30% off. President's Choice Trading Cards.com. So, anybody's interested in that, go check that out. Okay. Um, we don't have any more questions or comments right now. I feel like we could talk for another hour here, Brian. Um, anything else you want to you want to cover? Um, nothing. Well, you know what? I'm just gonna I'm gonna give a shout out. And 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 in, in addition to to this program that you're doing, which is great, especially giving people a, a chance in, in in tough times where they're sort of bored watching Netflix to watch something else and enjoy themselves and meet people they otherwise they wouldn't. I want to give a, a bigger shout out to to the boards. And, and my thanks for everyone on Hobby Insider who has supported uh, certainly the President's Choice, uh, certainly um, um, in the game. And I'm not sure that there's that many are you old enough to go back as far as Parker's was concerned. But uh, I, I did. I collected, I collected yeah, I, out of the packs. I got to tell you, I, I've had uh, um, an awful lot of input from, from the people on the boards that have led me in the direction of the kind of cards that I'm making now. Uh, prior to that, it was you know my idea and it was whatever. Now that I'm making cards directly for collectors, I, I need more and more input. And, and as, as you saw in Solitaire, I made I think 28 or 27 um, highlights cards, which the HI for highlights stands for Hobby Insider. And uh, I'm just watching now to see if all of the PC guys who told me who they wanted me to put in that product get that card. And hopefully all of the product is getting broken enough that those cards get onto the marketplace because there's some guys there that that maybe there's only one or two people in the whole world that really want that card and I want the right one to get it. So I want to give a shout out to all of all the people that are supporting because otherwise, you know, the answer to the question would have been we would have been finished, you know, a year ago. Uh, because as I say, this is not really, no one can, this can't be a business. It's not big enough to support anyone to be a business. This is just another extension of a hobby. And my side of the hobby is just the opposite side to the collector side of the hobby. But I'm telling you, it's just as much fun. So it's not as if, uh, you know, I'm going in there. I enjoy going in every day and searching for the cards. And when someone said, would you reuse a card? That's where we're getting a lot of the memorabilia from. From old cards. Pulling, pulling open old cards, correct. Yeah, yeah. Drops and shreds that are, that are, that's why I don't think you're going to see too many more of the mega patch. I don't have them. Right. And, and you're going to see a lot of them coming from, from Greg and Brian because they've got them and they've made some great, I don't know what they call them. They may call them mega patch, but they've they call them one timers now, I believe. And they're, well, they're very cool and they're, and they're, uh, the latest one is, is uh, superlative. Or is it ultimate? One of the the ones that has just come out. Ultimate, ultimate just came out. Ultimate memorabilia. Yeah. It's got some unbelievable patches in it. Unbelievable. Yeah, they're doing the big the, the big ones like the ones that I hoarded of uh, yes. the, yes. the mega patches from from in the game Ultimate Memorabilia. Yeah, so they're, they're doing some great ones. And and what they're what they're what they're doing correctly and what they're what they're I don't know if they're just understanding or they understand is it doesn't matter who player it is if it's a beautiful patch. 
there's a collector for that card. Sure. And it's not a matter of, like I say, Jonas Onroth. I mean, I went out and I bought uh, for the collector. I think I remember buying a, a, a LA Kings glove. And I don't know whether he got the, the Onroth on it or, or the iTech or whatever the company made his glove. And I saw it and I knew that I knew that I'd have someone who would buy at least one card. So I bought the glove. <laughs> That's awesome. And it, and it works that way. So it's, 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 it's an, it's a lot of fun. That's so awesome. Each eye guys thinks, you know who you are. <laughs> they sure do. They sure do. They're, they're, you know, it's, it's been nice to have you active on those message boards for all the years. And I know that it really helped to, uh, you know, endear you to a lot of the the members there and uh, really help help them build their collections from the cards that you've made. I know there's lots of happy people. They show them off on there regularly, daily. You know what? I should I should throw out a challenge that, you know, there's a, that you have a little card in your, uh, what is it, on the side of your, where your name is or on the bottom? Of which, sorry? On the boards. You have, you, you oh, have a, your signature at the bottom. You're right. I should have anyone who has a, uh, in the game card or a, a, a president choice card gets something or other. I don't know what I'll figure out something. Get more yeah, of them on there. But there are there are some, and it's really interesting because I do see you know people are talking about uh, Upper Deck Series One or SB Authentics, and they're talking about they just broke this and they got that and they got this. And down at the bottom of the whole uh, post is one of my cards, and I'm pretty proud of that stuff. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I, I remember. Uh, yeah, I'm, there was there was a contest on Hobby Insider once about the nicest memorabilia card, and it ended up being I think the Maurice Richard from Lord's. Oh, I forget what uh, set it was, but it was a jumbo don't, patch. Don't talk to me about Lord Stanley's mug. That was the last set I did. That was the last product I made. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah, it was the so, two, yeah 2014. So bittersweet and, memories. And it was a great looking box, and it was and I had a, there was a challenge whether I could use Lord Stanley's mug or not. And I said, you know what? I'll fight that one. Go ahead, bring it on. And, and then yeah. it didn't turn out that way. There were a lot of, during this discussion, people have been in the comments making, saying things like they love the made to order cards. Costa says, if I had a made to order card, I would pick Tim Horton to go along with my cut autos. Well, that's pretty cool. Uh, Nick says, what collector doesn't love a massive patch or a top patch card? I mean, we all love the more colors, the more cool the design, the better. Ryan has a question for you, Brian. Um, would you allow collectors to supply game-used pieces to turn into cards? Okay, it's very, very interesting, and I've and I've had to deal with this before. Here's the question. The question is, um, I need to be 100% sure of the authenticity before I put my name on the back of the card. Now, uh, there is no denying that mistakes have been made in authenticating things and, and uh, I don't know if collectors know this, but there was a guy whose father was one of the limited partners of the New York Yankees. Um, Steinbrenner was the general partner, and they had a bunch of limited partners. And his father was huge in the paper business in New York. And so he was uh, what we call a lucky sperm. He was the son of a very, very rich guy. And he had the largest uh, Yankee and baseball collection in the history of mankind because he had a, a lot of money and b insight into getting anything he wanted and uh he sold a lot of his collection to the baseball hall of fame and then he passed away the baseball hall of fame did an analysis on a jersey and found out that the nylon on the crest of the jersey was manufactured years after the jersey itself 
So it couldn't have been the nylon on the jersey. Therefore, from the Barry Halpern collection, that's world-renowned in the Baseball Hall of Fame, there is an item that is not authentic. The reason I bring that point out is, if that can happen to Barry Halpern in the Baseball Hall of Fame, it can happen to anybody. So you have to be as diligent as you can be. And even if you are as diligent as Barry Halpern was, mistakes can still be made. So the, the, the long answer to the question is, unless I really am 100% convinced, and I can still be wrong, but as long as I'm 100% convinced, I don't want to put my name on the back. The same way Ted Saskin made me demonstrate to him that everything that I bought was authentic before he put his name on. So what I'm saying to Ryan is it's very tough for me to do that and know 100% that it's now. If someone says to me, okay, here's a letter from uh, Migray or here's one from Classic or here's one. And they make mistakes too. But you can only get as good as you can get. And after that, it's just, you know, whatever. So I, that's what I'd have to look at uh, very deeply before I would say yes to that. So I had a collector who wanted a stick rack and he had a stick. And he basically said, would you make it for me? And I said, I'll tell you what, here's the deal. You pay for the shipping of the stick to me. Here's the financial deal if it's good. If it's not good, if I don't think it's, if I don't think I can authenticate it, and sticks are a lot easier than jerseys because there's markings on the bottom with dates and all kinds of different things. Still can make a mistake though, but I said, I'll pay for the shipping back. He said, fine. So at the end of the day, it was a good stick. I made him a stick rack. He got it for not a lot of money because I got the rest of the stick and hopefully I'll be able to sell part of it to break even. So it's a long-winded answer to the fact that yes, but not indiscriminately. I, I would really have to be very, very careful before I would want to put my name on the back of the card. Makes a lot of sense. Bruce Findlay says, some beauty King Richards I have because of Brian. Yeah. You're, you hey, know. Bruce. <laughs> it's early for Bruce. It's only a, only 9 o'clock up there. That's right. That's right. You know, exactly. I got to tell you, uh, I mean uh, – Whenever I find anything that's got uh, got King Richard on it, or it's got anything to do with, I'm doing something right now called octets. Uh, it's eight players on a card, each from the same team, and I've already put the Vancouver Canucks on hold. Uh, the only problem I have is I, it's it's staggered. You know, I've got I've got the lists of who I want, but I found four of these, and I found seven of those, and said, oh, I got to eight, I can make that card. Yeah. And then I got to do nine cards in a row because there's nine cards on the sheet. So I got to get nine complete cards ready. So it may take a while to get out. But Bruce, it's already got your name on it, not to worry. Okay. And then uh, after the question about can people, can collectors supply you memorabilia to turn into cards? Uh, Barry Gray says, can you, su can you supply collectors and turn them into cards? <laughs> Pretty funny. Um, Eli says, great cards, because he, he won that memorabilia, best card memorabilia uh, competition on Hobby Insider several several years ago. Eli. Peter, Peter says, old in the game, the best cards of all time. Thank you. Um, we, the comments are still coming in, Brian. Um, here, Cardboard Nostalgia, who runs a YouTube channel where he breaks products, says the sealed box of 0001 ultimate memorabilia I have coming in this week is going to be the highlight of my collecting career. Amazing set, amazing product. I think I just I just posted on his uh, on his uh, board. I just asked him when he opening. I can't wait. I can't wait to see the break. 
Awesome. So you'll probably watch that. If something, if something really great comes out of there. That'd be amazing. That'd be so cool. Really, really it would. I'm sure he'll post a link to the to the YouTube video on, on Hobby Insider once it's up and ready so you can watch for that, Brian. Here's a question from Scott. <clears throat> he says, if you can answer, why were you able to use the player masks without the airbrushing when you made them, but now many need to be altered? Oh, here we go. I promised myself I wouldn't answer any legal questions tonight lest I get raked over the coals. You know, the, the, the logos on the masks are a very interesting thing. Um, originally, uh, when I first did it, I, I think Pinnacle were the first one to do the mask. Am I right? I think they did it first. So. Well, Proset did did a mask in 90, yeah, 1991. Yeah, but. yeah, but I mean, uh, Pinnacle did a set of masks, I think, early, early, early. The it's, it's very interesting, and it's changed dramatically over the years. The first people to own the rights to the, the mask painting were the mask painter. He owned those rights. Then all of a sudden, iTech started making all of the masks. And iTech started to uh, own the rights to the masks. And the painter made the painted from iTech. And iTech owned that. And he had to work with iTech. There's a difference between making a card showing, and I've done both, showing the mask, the side of the mask, and the design with no face in it, versus using the head of the player with the mask. If you have a license for the player, the mask art is, is, doesn't matter. They've given up their rights when they allowed the player to step on the ice. When you use only the mask, you don't need the player, you just need the mask. Then one year, the NHL steps in and says to me, when I'm not licensed by them, but I'm licensed by the player, hey, you can't use that. That's our logo on the mask. And I turned around and said, okay. And I sent him a picture of a goalie who had a Hulk Hogan on the side of the mask. I said, I wonder if Hulk knows you're using his, his likeness on the side of your mask. And I never heard back. <laughs> okay. So the bottom line is it's all over the map. And the NHL was trying to get their their arms wrapped around it so it could be part of what their license was. And I haven't done it in a while, so I don't know if they ever got there. I think I got all the way up to mask five. I don't think I did six, but I had some different, I, I used different kinds of uh, techniques on them, a duflex technique from England and different things. And and we're, we're, we love doing the mask. And at one point, the uh, artist kept on saying, how come you're not, I, I, I don't have a contract from you this year. You know, of course I paid them all. It's because I didn't need them that next year. But all kinds of guys had stuff on the sides of their masks. They had uh, other hockey players or they had one of them had the who's that guy who played the Texas Ranger? He was the martial arts guy. Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris on the side. It was like, hey, one guy had the Hollywood sign. Kelly Rudy had the Hollywood sign on the. They were using uh, other people's intellectual property and it was OK for them. So why wouldn't it be OK for someone to use theirs? So. But the bottom line, it truly isn't their logo. It's an artist's representation of their logo. So there's a huge argument there. I just don't want to fight with anybody anymore. Yeah, fair. No, thanks for answering that one. Billy wants to say, I have to thank Brian again for actually having a Billy Leno game use stick and making the stick handle for me. Still one of the favorite cards in my Leno PC. There you go. Now, one of the things that's interesting, and I found two people who have supplied me with them, but their sort of their sources obviously run out because hockey's over. 
I found two sources of broken sticks. And I'm, I'm you know, as long as I get the, the, they can have the gold mine. I need the chef, so to speak. They can have right. a, so if I get the piece that has, so I, I sometimes get a groups of sticks. Now there are a lot of players there who I don't even recognize their names. You know, they're one or two or three or four game players and, but they've broken a stick, but I bought a, a, a twice. I bought large collection of broken sticks and in them, that's how I got my, one of my Austin Matthews. I couldn't get a complete stick, but I got a broken one. Cool. Okay. Al has a question for you, Brian. Were specific series targeted for show cards, and were those series then used at all of the shows in any given year? I think Al's looking for checklists because he's a player collector completionist and might want to know what might be out there. You know what? I can't even remember. We used to do... Un I think we went to shows all over the place and took the complete checklist of whatever product it was, and we're going really far back into, into the early 2000s, and we made a complete, like I remember, uh, who's got a show out west that's an initial, Big V or Big G or, oh, what the heck was his name? I'm not sure. Who does the western shows? Dale? Dale Bosa? Bosa show? show. But it was did it have another name for it before that? I just remember doing I doing sets for him and sets for like we did a lot of smaller shows, not just the national or the expo. We did the Chicago Sun Times show and we stamped those cards. You did the um, you did the summit shows in Edmonton yeah, when uh, Dave yeah. Martell had that show. Yeah. So there's a lot of lot out there. The only thing I can say is if we did a show and we did a, a, um, a redemption at that show, and you can find 17 cards from a certain series, then that whole series got done. So everyone on that checklist is done. I didn't keep any of that those checklists. But I have to tell you, I remember what we did was we would come home from the shows, and we'd shred the, uh, we'd shred the redemption cards that we didn't give out, and we'd have them in big plastic bags, and we used to take pictures of them and post them the big bags of all the shredded stuff. So yeah. some guys only got up to, and then we did the same thing with Ishutsi scores. Some Ishutsi scores got up to 20, very few. Some of them got up to 11, some of them got up to 14, some of them got up to 17. And then we used to shred them. We had these big white plastic bags. We dump all the shredded stuff in. Would you take out the memorabilia first and save it? No, no, we're talking about Ishutsi scores. Um, oh, the redemption cards themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we, no, no, we would ne never shred memorabilia. Too valuable. No, of course not. Of course not. Let's see. Here's a question from Iron Man Indy. He says, love all the Sean Burks you made over the years. Thank you so much. I also collect Mike Liute, but I've never seen a game used jersey, only sticks. Can you speak to that? You know what? I can't remember, but if he says it, he's probably right. If I, if he hasn't seen them, I haven't made them. I don't remember having one. Mike Liute rings in my ear mainly because he was an agent. And I did a lot of work with him for his players. So I, but if, if he hasn't seen one, I, I didn't have one. Sticks are a lot easier to get. And I probably had a stick and probably uh, uh, Leaf probably has it now. Okay. Okay. So that kind of takes us to the bottom of the comments again, guys. I apologize if I missed. It's hard for me to see them all, but I catch as many as I can and bring them on and ask Brian to respond to as many as I could. Before we do kind of start to wind down, Brian, I'm curious, uh, just, you know, the state of the hobby today, I don't know if you're keeping up on things, what's going on out there right now with cards, rookie cards from the 80s and 90s and the current basketball cards. It, 
are you or do you even know that like a LeBron James exquisite rookie from 2003 they're selling for a quarter million dollars out of numbered out of 99 they've I've seen two of them now sell one sold for 190,000 and one sold for 245,000 all in the last like all in 2020 what as a true veteran of the hobby a pioneer if you will from the beginning of the boom in the 90s what's your thoughts on that just the, the amount of money being thrown around and the amount and the state of the hobby right now it's it's really on on an upswing what do you what do you think about well, i don't think that that and i just saw the mike trout card go in the uh in the auction the golden auction had i don't think that's the hobby I think that's the other part of the industry. I don't think that's the hobby because the hobby to me is a group of people that collect cards and they trade them and they share them and they sell them. And they, you know, this guy gets a Gordie Howe. This guy was too late to get my Gordie Howe. So this guy gives it to him because he's a good collector, whatever. That's the hobby. This other stuff is I'm not 100% sure. Uh, you know what? I can't, I can't say it for sure. I mean, really, the guy you ask is Brian Gray who's so attached to stuff like that. He understands this, but if you add, if I was to guess and have to give an opinion, uh, I think there are guys out there that are manipulating these cards and, and we're going to see uh, uh, someone have a heavy duty crash. Although you have to be dumb to get, get crashed because you have to be dumb enough to go ahead and buy those cards at that price in order to lose that amount of money. And, and you know what? Most rich people are not dumb. There are some, but most rich people are not. So for someone to go out and now start buying those cards, I think some of those cards are being manipulated. Um, and I guess it's not wrong to manipulate it. If you sell me a card and, and I sell it to Greg Cohen and Greg sells it to Brian and the price keeps on going up and the next one goes to a meet and the next one goes to, to, to Curtis. And then all of a sudden we're all partners and then another guy pays us 150,000 for that card and we split the goings on. I guess we haven't done anything wrong. But I just, there's no rational reason that a card at a 99 has to have that value. And I've seen what's going on. Michael Jordan puts a television series out there, which is terrific to watch, by the way. But all his cards go through the roof. Like, all his memorabilia has gone nuts. Like, why? I, I don't know. More don't attention, know. right? I think this, what about simple, like, can we put it in the context of supply and demand and all the, the, the attention that's, really coming on some of the players now? Is that, could that justify some or explain some of it? Is it 99 cards a pretty big supply these days? Well, right. not for, not, not so much for LeBron James. I mean, he's got worldwide appeal. So maybe, maybe it's not, maybe it's not North America that's doing it. Maybe the money's somewhere else. Yeah. I don't know. I really, I really don't know for sure, but I don't think that's part of the hobby. I think it's part yeah. of the, I think the hobby has become, a, a, there's a lot of investors in the hobby now and right well, now. Like, yeah, but again, are they in the hobby or in the, are they in the trading card industry? When, once you say the word investor instead of collector, I see it a lot differently. How do you see it? I see it as an investor is in the industry of trading cards. It's not a stock he's trading, it's a trading card, it's a piece of cardboard. I see a collector as a guy who's buying something, value is secondary to the position it holds in his heart for something that he wants to own. If the value goes up, it goes up. If the value goes down, he's unhappy, but it goes down. It doesn't matter because he's not selling it. He now, just when he says, I'm getting out of this, I just grew up, I just had a son, I just did this, I just, my kids are in college, it does change and hopefully the value's there. But I see these guys that are doing that kind of stuff as I don't, I, I personally 
don't see them as collector hobbyists. I see them as investors. And that's okay. Sure. Yeah. Just, I just hope it doesn't hurt the collector who wants to get, mind you, the collector can just get a different kind of LeBron James card. That's, that's not right. numbered that he just gets his LeBron James card. And that's exactly. Yeah. That's the way yeah. I see it. Yeah. I, I'm not an expert on that. I got to tell you, um, I don't, I don't, I, I, if I buy a card, I, I bought it cause I want it. I don't, I'm not trying to buy it and then resell it. Yeah. Don't understand it. I'm not sophisticated enough to do it. And I look at all these stories about guys that are trimming cards and cutting cards and guys that are getting special rates at Beckett or, 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 or at PSA. And then, you know, I, I just don't understand all of it. I mean, PSA has got themselves up and so does Beckett, an unbelievable business. Why would you play around with it in any way, shape or form? It's unbelievable. Do you, do, you, do you think they are playing around with it or do you No, think no, I'm just saying why would they get involved well, in it? I know. And that's I what I think too. You, you, why would you risk everything to make well, a few extra dollars? Right. But do you think do you think do you think they might be? No, I don't have a clue. I'm just sort of saying that. I mean, it's such a huge business that that's that's just stuff you can just fluff off. No, if it I mean if either of those businesses were mine, I, I mean it, it wouldn't be a you know, why would you want to jeopardize yourself like that? Now, listen, again, just like authentication, everyone can make a mistake. The guys are just looking at it with their eyes and whatever. But, you know, you so you see all these things. So you have to wonder. And that's another thing. Those guys that are doing that, they're not collectors. They're not hobbyists. They're in the trading card industry and they're doing what, you know, what they can do. Yeah. So I really see a difference. So to answer your question is, it's not it's not prejudicing our hobby, but it's hurting the trading card industry because eventually that card is not worth it. I mean, how can it be? How can it's, it's a piece of cardboard? There's yeah. 99 of them. I mean, yeah. explain to me the Mike Trout thing. How can Mike? They're going to make hundreds of thousands, if not millions, more Mike Trout choke cards in the future how can that card be worth almost a million dollars you know what it, it it's just it's manufactured scarcity and interestingly enough that was the title of uh joe orlando's editorial in the most recent issue of the smr the the magazine the psa puts out yeah. where he actually i read it he actually goes on to say that you know he was he's old school a traditionalist and he he always liked rarity that came because they were truly rare because People like your example earlier about throwing those Parker strappers into the garbage. It's because you did that, that the ones that survived are worth so much. So he goes, but he goes on to say that, well, that's his real feeling about what, how you can derive value from scarcity. He goes on to say that he's now starting to convert over to understanding the value in this new world of manufactured scarcity. So, you know, there, it's, it's still scarce and there will be millions of other Mike Trout cards for sure. But the rarest, I think this one was out of five that just sold for $900,000. So, and it was a rookie card, et cetera, autographed, nine, BGS 9.5. So there were other reasons around it. But, and, you know, if you take a zero off that, I could say there's reasons for that card being worth $92,000. Yeah. But 927, when I remember, I was at, I think it was a Sotheby's auction way, way back when I made a bid on the uh, Honus Wagner card. For 150000 I knew I was going to get it, but now I can tell the story that I was there and I stepped up my thing and I made a bid. I knew I wasn't going to get it, but that was a Honus Wagner card and it went for like half a million dollars. So you, you, was that, did you bid against Gretzky and McNall for that? Well, I didn't know who I was bidding against. Yeah. 
Yeah, but you did, I yeah. still have a, I still got my little thing, and I can say I was in there. But at one hundred and fifty thousand, which there is no way I was going to buy it, even yeah. if they said sold, I would have. You know what I would have done in my pants, but I wanted to. I wanted to put in a bid at a time where I could say for the rest of my life, "Oh yeah, I bid on that card." But but I mean that there was a reason for that. But this yeah. is my route. He's still here. We can yeah. still buy more. You can buy a a Mike Trout out of five that grades nine point five tomorrow on next year's set or whatever they're doing. So yeah. I I don't understand it, but I guess it's good for some people who have like, who've had a Michael Jordan rookie for a long, long time. And now they're getting a huge dollar for it. Yeah. I'm glad for them, but I still don't think that's the hobby part of trading cards. I think the hobby part is the stuff that you're doing and everyone on your site's doing and everyone who comes to this, uh, uh, this particular uh, event is looking at their hobbyists, their, trading in there uh, I, I get you this and i just saw that and go do this and what i saw in the gordy howe and i apologize to everybody i should have doubled the price in the gordy howe and everyone have got one and i would have made twice as much money but the bottom line is you know i just did it because i pulled these things out of a drawer and i just said go on, you know let everyone have an opportunity and and but anyways so i apologize to those who out, were 52, 53, 54 on the 51s or were 63, 64, 65, 66 on the 63s. But what I saw was, and, and I also apologize for the fact that when it first went up, one person asked for more than one of each. And I said, yes. And then I realized when I saw all the other emails come in, geez, I shouldn't have said yes to that first person because there's so many happening. I thought I'd sell a few on HI and then I would put them up in my store. Yeah. Yeah. But How did you know that? How did you know they would? They would I didn't know, that? but it, 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 you're quick to learn when 15 minutes later you realize you shouldn't. Yeah, shouldn't. yeah. My point, my point really is I've seen how guys have traded and to, so people get the same number on the back of the card and someone said, ah, I didn't really want as much as you did. You didn't get those, so you can get them. That's hobby. Yeah, this, for sure. That that's that's community, right? That's yeah, just yeah. That's that's this other stuff I don't consider hobby. This other stuff I consider investments. And there's nothing wrong with it if you're doing it. I, I guess there's no. It's all legitimate. Uh, but then again, you know, remember we've we've gone through the 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 era where an auction house, Mastro Auction House, uh, some of those product things went up in value and they really shouldn't have. Yeah. 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 Yep. Tom, so, yep. You know, Kenny Golden has, has been in this business probably longer than I have, which is, means that we're like, he's really long in the tooth. And so I trust everything that he does there. But but there have been auction houses that do play, play games with that. And then I also, I also understand, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't want to say anything that's wrong. I also understand that that Honus Wagner card that sold for so much was tampered with. Yeah, Mastro admitted it. Yeah. yeah so... Anything can be anything. Yeah, for sure. There, there's a there's another version of the Wagner there. It's the I think it's the one the PSA five jumbo version. It's just one that was cut big, uh, and it sold for like three point two million dollars uh, last time. So, pretty pretty crazy. The only, thing, the only thing wrong with that is I didn't own one. That's the only yeah. thing I find really wrong with it. I yeah. didn't have a Mike, Mike Trout or a, or a yellow. <laughs> I didn't collect basketball or baseball at the time. So speaking of the difference between collectors and investors, Barry makes a comment here. Some people are collectors first and then become investors by default. They might genuinely love collecting LeBron, Crosby, or Trout. And that kind of, that's kind of the category I'm in, Brian, you know, because talk about a, a Michael Jordan rookie card. I have a PSA 9 in my collection, which when I bought it for 
900 or $1,000 at the National in 2008. I paid full value for it and was very happy to finally have my Jordan rookie. About six months ago, it was worth about $5,000, maybe $6,000. Now, all of a sudden, it's worth $11,000 US. And I think to myself, do I want to sell it and, and lock in the gain? Well, I mean, it'd be nice to lock in a $10,000 gain, but then I got to go buy another one because my, my collection is incomplete without it. I look at it like, and I, I consider it an asset in my collection, yeah. but I didn't buy it to sell it 12 you're, years later. You're still a collector who's just got a valuable card because that's, you, that's didn't, right. you didn't buy it to resell it. And I think that's what I'd say to Barry. There's a difference between uh, uh, getting a bunch of LeBrons or Crosby's or Trouts and then them becoming more and more valuable. If the reason you bought it was to because I think it's going to go up four times in the next year and I'm going to sell it, then you're investing in it. If you bought it as a collector and then as a collector say, Jesus is really valuable, there's nothing wrong with selling it and making a profit. But you're probably going to regret not having it as part of your collection if you're really yeah. willing as a collector. You know, you're going to say, huh. Eh. You know, what you're going to say is five years from now, geez, that thousand dollars really wasn't worth that much to me. Yeah. Now yeah. I can't put it back in my collection because it's eight thousand dollars. But yeah. I think you either start off. I think the investors in these deals are not collectors at all. They could be guys that don't know anything about trading cards, but they're this guy will sell to this guy will sell to that guy will sell to this guy. But I don't know that because it's not part of my world at all. Never right. have. Well, it is. It is good. There, there's a whole subsection of the hobby or the industry now that is really just about investing. There's a Facebook group and a YouTube channel called Sports Card Investor and all they talk about is what direction are cards going up or down, up or down. Who's the buy right now? And they're very, they are very, they're extremely short sighted in their analysis because they're looking at what's happening like in the last two weeks. And someone like me who's been observing this, this hobby and price points for 30, 40 years. I know that if you're looking two weeks at a time, even one season at a time, you can make gains here and there if you're just in it to make money. But and if you're if you're in it, you're going to get burned in the long run because things never work out the way you think they're going to. Just remember, a lot of people with a lot of money are locked down like the rest of us are. And so they've got nothing else to do. This might be the time to strike with them. Whereas when they're back and doing whatever they're doing and flying all over the world doing their so, thing, they may not have time for this crap. That's right. They'll be distracted again. Exactly. They'll be distracted. Maybe yeah. that's the answer. I don't know. Yeah, Bruce says that's me. There's no resale market for Richard Brodeur. No, because there's, there's only one Bruce Findlay out there who wants to buy him. So uh, for sure. Ziggy says, um, interesting opinion. You made this and you think it's overvalued now. I do not, Ziggy, recall that coming up in this discussion. So I'm going to dismiss that comment for now. But you go on to say Wagner's are a million plus now. Yes, they're they're well over. You then go on to say the hobby is so expensive that people need to be investors to sell and make money to collect. Now, there's an interesting comment, Brian. What he's saying is, what he's saying is that it's so expensive to buy cards in this hobby, whether unopened or singles on the secondary market, that if you don't have a lot of discretionary income, one way to get that income is to buy and sell cards so you can afford more cards for your nothing person. Wrong, nothing, nothing wrong with that. I, I'm saying that the guys that are doing the Mike Trout and the, and the uh, uh, LeBron James type of thing that are coming into this now are different people than what, what Ziggy's saying. I understand that completely. Absolutely. You know, yeah. when you're when you're buying a box now and you're opening a box and getting what you want or buying a case and getting what you want, you put that aside. You've got to you've got to sell all the rest of that to recoup and go move on to your next one. 
Or you get something that goes up and you say, you know what, this is more valuable. This is worth it more to me to sell it than collect it. That's perfectly fine. I totally agree with that. I'm what I'm saying is this. I think there are people that are way outside of our hobby, way outside of being collectors who couldn't care if it's a LeBron, LeBron James car, a card or Marilyn Monroe's bra. If it's the right thing to buy, he'll buy it and then resell it and someone will resell it. So I'm totally in agreement with that. And, yeah. and I didn't make the comment about the Honus Wagner because I don't know the value of the new ones. I just know the value of the one I didn't buy. Yeah. <laughs> If you would if you would have been the winner of that, if you would have beat uh, Gretzky and McNall on that, I mean they en they ended up actually only selling the card for about six fifty. Wasn't that the card though that made um, that made PSA famous? Yeah, it was. It's the it's the card that has the the PSA serial serial number is like zero 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 one. It's the first yeah. card they ever graded. Basically, it became worth tremendously more graded, and so everyone says, "Well, then I'm going to grade all my cards." Yeah, and look at their business now. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, Peter, Peter says, I don't think doubling the price would have made any difference on the Gordy Howes, meaning you would have sold them all again. I know. Um, yeah. Costa, <laughs> Costa points out that there was a there was even a, a an exquisite Michael Jordan LeBron James dual logo man one one that sold for hundred for nine hundred thousand dollars. And this is true. This just sold back in I think February or March. And it was purchased by a gentleman out of New York. His name is Nat Turner, a, a very wealthy collector. But this guy's a true collector. He bought. He buys. He also bought the the Michael Jordan card last March of 2019 for three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That really sparked a whole thing in basketball. And uh, but this guy's a collector. He's on. He's 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 a true true collector. Very very interesting. Let's see what, what else we have here. Lots of stuff. Uh, what does Lars say? The hobby is the smile on a kid's face when finishing his set or pulling an autograph of your favorite player for the first time or getting a high grade on your Griffey rookie and knowing you'll never sell it. I mean, there's all sorts of things that represent what the hobby is different to everybody, right? We all are in it for our own reasons. We all approach it differently. I say this every show. We all approach the hobby differently, and that's what keeps it so interesting. I'm going to tell you, it's not it's not this way now, but way back when, when I was opening sets, the thing that bothered you most is if, let's say, you needed number 64, Dick Duff, and you needed him to finish your set, and he wasn't the key card in the set, but that's what you needed, and you opened the card, and you looked at you took your piece of gum, because it was on the top, into the mouth it went. You looked at the first card and you know that from the sequence, you weren't getting Dick Duff, you had every card. You went through all five cards, whatever was in there, and you knew that if you got Tom Johnson on top, the next one was Dickie Moore, and think you might as well have thrown the cards in the garbage along with the wrapper because you weren't getting him. And that's, he's right, he's right. Getting that last card, uh, it was the key. And, and that's what the hobby is. And the hobby's changed dramatically, but it really hasn't, it's just, the, your your appeasement is just different now than what it was. Well, you but, know what we you know what, and I, this guy this guy who buys these cards, he's in a different price bracket than all of us. So when he collects, we can't I can't compensate the fact that it's worth it. But that's correct because my painting is a twenty five hundred dollar Canadian artist, and his painting is a Chagall, and he's paying a million six for his painting. So maybe that's the whole point. Maybe they are collectors. They're just at a different level that that what we would know of, and if that's the case, wow, that's terrific. Yeah, well, it's like Paul. It's like Paul says here. I just wish I had those problems. Do I drop a million on Mike Trout today or or not? Yeah, 
I think a lot of people would would, uh, would like to have those problems for sure. You know, but one thing that has changed in the hobby is is that like the hobby started where the cards were not the the primary product. They were they were a premium to sell the gum or the chocolate or the cigarettes. Yes. And in 1990 really is when that all stopped, right? Yeah. No more gum. Now the primary product is the cards. And I mean, even in the 60s, 70s and 80s, I would I would argue that the cards were primary, but that it was still being sold the same way that they were sold back in the 10s and 20s and 30s, 40s, 50s, where the gum or the the the, the cards were the premium. So all of a sudden in 1990, when Upper Deck came out with that high-end product with the hologram and the pictures on the back and the the new up the new modern card stock. It wasn't about the gum anymore and the cards became the primary product and it really turned into a business at that point. I believe, hey, that's when you got in the business. Yeah. It turned into a business. It wasn't a, a hobby for kids anymore to get the cards out of their parents' cigarette pack or the cards along with the bubble gum that they wanted to chew with their friends and throw the cards against the wall or put them in their spokes. So I think the hobbies changed dramatically and I think along with it, collectors have changed. They've become investors. They, you've got the hybrid maybe like myself, where I collect because I love cards. I just love them. But I also look at them as assets in my overall portfolio. And Did I buy any of your mega patches? I don't think any of them are for sale. Are they no, right? they're not. I get people wanting them all the time. I say, if you're going to buy one, you got to buy all 85 oh, of them. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. No, it's, they're, it's, they're... It's, a, it's a very interesting dynamic. And uh, I would imagine that a guy who collected the the tops 1955 baseball it would look at the uh, Mike Trout card and just shake his head. Wouldn't just wouldn't understand it. But there are guys out there with that kind of money who don't want anything but the most valuable, the number one, the highest rated on PSA or whatever grade level you want to look at it. That's what they want to have. I have a good friend in Toronto who just bought the uh, the uh, shoe collection out of the Sotheby's. And they knew he was coming, so they took away the number one shoe. They knew they sold him the other 49. Either it was 49 out of 50, I think it was. And they hit the other one, the number one one. They made it separate because they knew if he bought the first auction that he had to buy the second one. And he did. He had to buy the second one and pay double for it. And now, apparently, Jordan puts on this, puts on this television show in which he shows a sneaker that he put back on when he, when he, after he retired from baseball, he was in the finals again, and he put on one of his sneakers from a couple years earlier when he won and his foot was bleeding or someone was telling me the story. I didn't see that episode. And that shoe sells for like, I don't know, half a million dollars, more than that whole collection, which made all the headlines for only months ago. So it is a crazy world. And there are people out there that have crazy money and, uh, and will pay crazy prices for things that you scratch your head. But I guess they're not. I guess they're like one of a kinds in another strata of the collection world that makes sense. Yeah. Because yeah. if you show me a million and a half dollar picture, I couldn't I couldn't wrap my arms around it. But you show me a million dollar Bugatti, I can't afford it, but I certainly I'd certainly sit in it and be yeah. think about owning it. So there are there are different levels for everybody, and I guess, but I just you know just my feeling is a, a, a hobby is a lot is a lot different. I don't think the guy who is buying those million dollar cards or half a million dollar cards he may be a collector, but I don't think if you say well is that your hobby 
I think he'd say, no, it's no, that's no. my collection. It's a big, yeah. there's a big difference. But it's, hey, you know what? It's great. I'm glad, I'm glad to see it going up than going down. Yeah. Well, it's going up right now, but it could, it could turn, it could easily turn and it, it will eventually you can count on one thing we can count on are cycles and it's going to, it's going to cycle. That's for sure. Well, let's just hope that all the people that we know are avoiding it. Couple of comments on the hobby itself. Brett says, I think the way of obtaining the cards has changed direct to consumers, eBay breakers, you name it. It's so much more than just a collector opening packs. Very true. Jay-Z says the hobby to me is all the great people I've met along the way and the little pieces of cardboard that bring me back to my youth. I mean, the he's a hundred percent right. Quote, you can quote that one. Yeah. Let me go back to the breakers. Um, sure. Breakers is sort of, it's, it's not necessarily new. It's fairly new to me because I remember going into the national of maybe two or three years ago and all of a sudden seeing these huge, a huge area of breakers. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's probably, you tell me, has it taken over a, a big section of the industry? It certainly has. I mean, the card companies themselves cater, like when I'm, uh, you know, the Upper Decks, Panini's Tops, they cater to the breaker culture right now. And to make sure that when these, because these guys, they're the ones that are opening up a lot of product and making it accessible yeah. to collectors who maybe can't afford a whole case. So you buy, you know, one of the teams of, of all, in that league and you get all those cards. So it's more affordable. There's the, it's a gamble. There's the gambling aspect. It's a, it's a big thing. And I mean, if I've been to the national in the last five years, there's the breaker pavilion. It's yeah. that it's Chicago. It's that whole upstairs uh, area. That's just beside the TriStar autograph booth. And it's a huge area. Uh, no more vendors in there. No more dealer booths. It's wow. just for breakers. It's a, it's a it's a big deal. I think it's um it's not. I think it's maybe slowed down a like. I, I think it's past the peak right now, but maybe not. I mean, it, it it's actually probably not. There's so much attention on this hobby right now. A lot of mainstream attention that the breaker the breaker uh, fad could be just getting going. For all, for all I can tell. So, so you think it's people that just like the action because it's harder to get the card you want in a break. I mean, getting it on eBay or getting it at a show, you just walk over and that's the card I want. A break is a little more, but it's the action. It's the it's the gamble. It's yeah. the, it, it's a gamble. People love gambling, right? So, yeah. yeah. As as the casinos are closed right now, but the breakers are still on the, on the internet. And those gamblers need somewhere to put their money. And a lot of gamblers are, well, I shouldn't say a lot because I don't know all the gamblers, but I do know some gamblers that are also card collectors. And I'm sure they're putting all their money into cards right now because they, they're unable to gamble or they're gambling online. Who knows? Who knows? Um, okay. Uh, what's this? Brett then says, I think the secondary sell, I think secondary selling is a huge component of the hobby. Well, of course it is. That's eBay and card shows and all the private deals that are going out there. Uh, Barry says, I see my son's collecting the same way now that I do. I collect cards that, I collect the cards that collect me to my, connect me to my former youth and they, they collect cards of the players that connect them to their current youth. It's really a wonderful thing to see so genuine. Yeah. That's the one thing, right? It's like, it's like with your, when you had in the game, you know, the, the, the brand that keeps you in the game, it, you know, these, these cards do connect us to, uh, I don't want to say our heroes, but to the the players that represent our cities and to our favorite players that we somehow connect with, it's uh, 
You know what? We used to see guys coming up to the booth, and I always love being at the Redemption Park because I like watching people break because the best people, most companies that are, that are in other industries pay a fortune to have these little uh, groups that they watch through a double glass. Focus groups. Focus groups. And, and I just had focus groups for nothing. I just sat there and watched people opening your product and talk about it. And when a father would bring a son and watch them opening up, especially a Heroes and Prospect, and have them arguing over what the best card of the pack is because the kid is saying it's one of the CHL players and the father's saying it's one of the retired players. It was spectacular to watch. They were collecting the same product, enjoying it as much, but they were almost splitting the packs in half. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. It really was something. All right. Well, what do you think? Anything, any final thoughts before we wrap it up? We're, we're coming up on three hours, Brian. I've never gone over about two hours and 10 minutes. So this is a new record for, for the show. Well, I'm setting new records too. I'm not, I'm not at this time of the day. No, you're, it's, it's definitely late for you right now. So we should probably uh, wrap it up. Um, Andy says, thank you. Great show. Thank you, Andy, for joining. Bruce says, I collect cards for me. I collect scotch for investing and I drink beer because it's yummy. There you go, Bruce. And you sell beer because it's profitable when you can, when you can be open that's, for sure. That's all right. Well, listen, Brian, um, <clears throat> thank you so much for coming on. You, uh, it's exactly yeah. what I expected. A good time for all. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm sure this video will, will be watched many times in the future. It will be available on the YouTube channel into forever, I would think. So, um, you know, you can let your friends and family, Brian, know if they want to check it out and learn more about you as a man we'll in the card it, hobby. We'll it on President's Choice. There you, there you go. There you go. My birthday sale is on Thursday. Yeah, don't forget. He uh President's Choice Trading Cards 30% off of off during Brian's birthday, which is coming up on Thursday, May the 27th. And say All right. hello to Carlos for me on Wednesday. Okay. I will say hi to Carlos for you. Um, some more comments coming in, but with just a bunch of thank yous again for coming on. So Again, everybody for watching. Thanks as always. Appreciate you watching. We had really amazing viewership tonight. That's thanks to you, Brian. Thanks again for, thank you again for coming on. And to everybody else, we'll see you on Wednesday with Carlos Diego. And then next Saturday, Billy Celio from Upper Deck will be joining me. And we are still scheduled right out uh, through at least mid-June at this point. So have a good night. Good rest of the weekend, everybody. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Take care, everyone.